0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today, we're going to talk about networking troubleshooting. (laughs) This is something that all of us run into nowadays. It's not You don't really pick up almost any of our gear without having to connect it to the internet or connect it to each other over a network. So we're going to talk about those. So if you've got questions about networking, you're trying to figure something out, throw those in, make sure to tag them in Makana. And uh, if you're not in Makana, you can still ask questions. Uh, The way to ask questions is go to askofficehours.com works 24 seven for general questions. Um, It's right there. You can use that QR code as well. So um, if you want to try that, go ahead and uh, uh, throw that in, throw your questions into there and we'll get them into the show. Um, And uh, we had a... Black Magic had a little uh, presentation yesterday, and there's a lot of questions about it. So we thought we'd just move all the questions from Black Magic up to the front, get through them all, and uh, and then move on to our regularly scheduled program. So let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Uh, Bill, what do we? Ha- or Jason, what do we have? Yeah. Thank you.
1: P.J. Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota writes in Blackmagic Cinema Camera 6K. Note, no pocket on this one. Full frame 35mm sensor but lacks built-in NDR filters like the Pocket 6K Pro. What are your thoughts on specs and are there any panelists going to chase some delicious bokeh with this camera? Go ahead, Jesse.
2: I think that was a surprisingly incremental upgrade to the pocket line. The dropping of the pocket moniker feels uh, cosmetic, um, and it's a day one purchase for me. <laughs> yeah, the
0: the um, it looks uh, it looks pretty good. I mean, I think that one of the things the, the full frame is something a lot of us were waiting for. So I think that we the hard part with full frame is that full frame really requires a lot of effort if you don't have good autofocus. <laughs> so it's it, those two things go together if you're a small producer. And again, I think that where where Blackmagic is having a little bit of they got to find themselves is that they're building a camera that is kind of halfway in between. It's got a full frame sensor but not autofocus. It's got um you know it also doesn't have a global shutter. It's also not kind of a box camera we talked about it later. And so when they say they want to do it as a high-end professional, there's a lot of fe- – the way it's built um, makes it harder to do that. Um, and so the it's kind of this, this – they're kind of in this in-between. The images look amazing, um, you know, for – and especially when you look at a $2,500 camera, there are not many – $2,500 full-frame cameras. And I will say that the full-frame will fix th- things for a lot of people, especially if, you, if you're if you planning to use ex- external uh, focus tools, which would you would do in a cinema camera. Uh, go ahead, Bill.
3: Well, I just also think it was interesting what it does have and what it doesn't have. And it, I kept thinking to myself, who's the target for this? And it came to me that it, it's really the young resume filmmakers and people who want to be in the cinematic movie-making arena. This is not going to be a good corporate camera. I don't think it's not going to be a good uh, run-and-gun camera. It's not going to be good for news and things like that. But for the person who wants to make the resume movie and have it look fabulous and yet still spend very little money, the fact that it has all those instant shims that Gran was showing about putting into different lens systems tells me that they're making this for whatever you've got. If you want to be a young filmmaker, this is your camera. That's where I saw it targeted. Go, Tom. I'm really happy to see that with the L-mount, they've come in with that very low-depth flange, and you can adapt to just darn near anything. I think it's going to be very versatile.
4: Go, Courtney. Yeah, with the uh, variety of mounts, for, especially for PL, I can see this being used, uh, you know, made up to use Panavision lenses as a as a crash cam or a C cam or a D cam and a multi-cam shoot uh, on a professional Hollywood film. So it, it'd be a good, cheap way to put an expensive lens in danger uh, and not risk too much camera, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, you know, my 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 brother has worked on a, quite a few films where he said the Blackmagic cameras, the current 6Ks, have been used for crash cams, and they've been really successful and cut quite well with the with the Aries. Um, you know, so it it just depends on on how you manage the color correction later. Go ahead, Mitchell.
5: I uh what Bill said uh, resonates with me because a lot of uh, film school graduates uh, used to have to buy a red and give their life away to, or, to own it, I think the a, a cost of entry has dropped substantially. So a lot more people are going to have a chance to do cinema production uh, with a, a lot lower price tag to get into it and then grow from there based on their
6: performance. Go Chris. Yeah, Bill, it was interesting. You said resume film. I was like, what do you mean by that? And then it, I, it dawned on me. But when you said that, I was thinking of Vincent LaFerre and his first Canon 5D mm-hmm. uh, video, uh, Reverie. I think I think we should make a movie as a as a group and just call it Resume.
3: <laughs> the original Memento I think was a resume film mm-hmm. and started Christopher Nolan, you know, everybody went wow and the next thing you know he's directing the biggest movies of all time.
0: Yeah, and and I want to be clear that 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 the I I I own Oh, 090 owns, I think nine or 10 of these cameras of the last generation, the first generation of the 6K cameras, not even the the pros uh, or the newer ones. And we've shot a lot of pretty good footage with it. You know, like it's, it's been pretty usable footage and it looks good. Uh, Where, you know, where you start to have issues, number one is it, while it seems like a feature to have the, it is a nice thing to have the monitor on the back because you can just set up and start to shoot. The downside of that is that you just worry about it all the time while you're building rigs because you've got this piece of glass sitting around you um, that you have to kind of manage. And the form factor, you know, really the form factor for filmmaking has really become box cameras. You know, we, we just want a sensor, you know, a sensor box that has some I.O. to it, and then we want to build something around it. And I hope that, black like Magic, I, I personally hope that they just replace the Ursas with a box camera and use this camera as the, you know, this is the cinema camera with with a... With that, and they, I think that they have these studio cameras that they've been building that they've been putting out. These these the new Ursa with the thirty super thirty five that really has this kind of studio um, build for it. I think is that's the right direction for them. And I th- so I think that what I th- see possibly coming is you see this cinema camera, you then see. A, the broadcast kind of cameras that have the big screen, and they've got a bunch of things that are, that they're there that are, that are super thirty-five, and then you end up with a box camera that's full frame sensor or even larger than full frame sensor. Um, we see some of those in the um, in the the higher end cameras, and it, it's pretty useful. Go ahead, Jesse. Jesse.
2: Um, Bill, I do have to push back a little bit. I disagree that these cameras Good. don't... <laughs> they- I absolutely feel like the Black Magics are excellent run-and-gun cameras if you approach all filmmaking from a fully manual standpoint. Uh, the the extra latitude you get with raw allows us to take these out and shoot really dirty and then do a lot of correction in post. But that's because we always shoot fully manual. And if you're shooting fully manual, a Sony isn't that different from a Black Magic in terms of how it how it operates in your hand.
3: Yeah, that's 100%. a fair point. I will say that the form factor of this surprised me because it's very much that DSLR form factor that's got the the kind of battery thing. So that's great for a DSLR shooter because you can hang the camera down, run and gun with it and things like that. I'm
0: surprised actually that they kept this form factor for this set of I, needs. I, I, think that there, I think that the approach there was really looking at the fact that people have a lot of accessories, and they really wanted to let people say, "Hey, you can upgrade to this full frame sensor without having to rebuild your entire kit um mm-hmm. while i you know so but i don 't think that would have stopped very many people like i just to, to be honest if that price point if the price point was five hundred dollars more and we had a box camera with a with global shutter, I think they'd sell twice as many <laughs> you know like so um, because it's just you know like we suddenly have you know and and even without the autofocus, the autofocus by the way super hard like they they you know like what sony's doing is really hard but if you're trying to go towards youtube and i think that if you look at some of the stuff when they keep on saying you can shoot your TikToks, you can shoot vertical you can shoot these things they are definitely aiming at that market they're aiming at this social market when you see the job listings for final cut pro you know and how many are looking for ios these two companies are really fighting hard for that for that that social market that social media production market Um, But that requires the the social media production market requires autofocus, you know, and so that's why Sony has made so many inroads. And to be honest, Sony's outreach programs are insanely good. Like that's the that's the other part of it is they have all these Sony camps and stuff like that for influencers. Um, Next question.
1: Bollock, Lopez Waterman, this time in Norfolk, Virginia. In in the Blackmagic announcement yesterday, did you get a sense of whether the Blackmagic camera on iPhone can ingest time code or is it just using the phone clock?
6: Chris? Uh, I do not see any way to get time code into it, Uh, but it does have the choice of uh, record run time code, or time of day. And I can't imagine what barbarian on the planet would do record run. I mean, time of day is just so much Courtney, better. Courtney, will bring it up. Go ahead, uh, Mitchell.
5: Yeah, I'm just thinking that uh, obviously it's going to have great synchronous time code to the video because it's going to be in the metadata that uh, goes out to the file. But uh, getting it in and out, there's no gazintas and gazaltas on an iPhone allows that to happen. Courtney?
4: Well, there could be. It could use Bluetooth because Tentacle has a Bluetooth timecode generator. And if somebody writes the software, or the hooks into this software, it could use the microphone and Bluetooth channel uh, to send timecode in as long as the, so- as the software could handle it. Bill?
3: Yeah, and if the port is bi-directional, there's no reason that Tentacle or something else couldn't come up with a USB-C solution to inject timecode into the computer. So, Hold on, wait and
6: see. Chris? I just noticed that nobody said iPhone 15 yet, so I needed to say that. And then also... Um, I, <laughs> just say it. Did you say it randomly, iPhone 15? I did. And so uh, I this think... This is brought to you by the iPhone What's 15, most amazing about this lens. this iPhone app is that, and I said this to Alex yesterday, Blackmagic Sherlocked Filmic, and Apple wasn't even part of the equation.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there, there might be questions about this in the future, but I guess since we're talking about the the, the iPhone app here, uh, that was a just a, a daisy cutter, like like it, it, you know, just I mean, they just they just they just dropped a bomb on every every company making uh, a phone, um, any kind of app for the phones is gone. Like it, it is like
6: it, I, I couldn't. I, I was just, stu- uh, yeah. I, I the, did you have well, any idea this might be like a thing?
0: comment when but you the, pull the um phone out, I
6: was like what
0: so but but the um but the but I but I will say that the uh the this is a date. This is just such an incredible. The problem is it's integrated with Resolve. It's uploading to the Blackmagic Cloud. It has all the tools that you want. It has the interface that ma- that that's, is very similar to the other <laughs> the other cameras. It is like I just don't understand how Filmic su- survives this, to be honest. And we we have we've been friends with Filmic. We've had them on the shows, uh, but I don't know how how they get um, you know how that how they get around this. Go ahead, Grant.
7: Chris just wants to jump in again. Uh, something about not knowing if you, you knew about it ahead of time, Alex. What I love is whether you did or didn't, just saying no comment is so classy. Like it's just, it's such a cool response. Um, uh, what I find with the app is it feels like a version two already. That's what was amazing to me is all the settings, all the, all everything that's kind of built out in it. It doesn't feel like a beta. I yeah. didn't say it was a beta. Um, it, and and to your point as well, Alex, about it being the same kind of interface. So if you're familiar with their cameras, then you're you're learning this as well. And so you could throw this at someone who has never used a Blackmagic camera. Yeah. Play around for this with this for a little while, and then you'll be familiar with some of the interfaces of uh, Blackmagic cameras.
0: And the fact that it's it's going to carry all that color data and metadata and potentially depth data and all these other things into the, right into Resolve with it is a pretty profound um, you know opportunity you know and I just don't understand how anyone would do it and I think that I think that this probably this development probably happened around uh, when Filmic did the subscription <laughs> because you know the, with Jeff Bezos the, you know they say your uh, your margin is my opportunity that's he was quoted as saying that and Grant. Has, is notorious for having a feeling like subscriptions are repugnant and i can just see him just like seeing the filmic thing and deciding your subscription is my opportunity you know and and um i think that he he went i i personally think that he went i have no no information about that but i but i um i think that that would be probably when my eyes would light up like hey i
6: could do something go ahead chris um i want to say something briefly about the save clips to menu uh, the th- about putting it to the cloud. I texted, as soon as Grant said that, I texted Alex. I was like, okay, you, you you got my attention, Grant Petty. Um, being a pretty much, I don't like Resolve. Um, but not as an editor, I, I think the idea of clips just magically appearing in a bin is problematic because I want to know what's going into my project. It's a little bit of sour grapes there, but... I'd almost rather have it just go to my hard drive. But with the thing, you don't have to go straight to the, um, to the cloud. You can pick any folder, shared folder. And so we set up a iCloud shared folder. And I can put the clips right into that iCloud shared folder. So it, it doesn't have to go straight into the bin, but it does magically show up on my editor across, on the other side of the planet.
3: Do you think we that think announcement about- from yesterday with the bigger buckets was a part of that? Because uh, iCloud
0: yeah. now has bigger accounts. I don't think it was part of it. I, th- I think it's no. just Apple realized a lot sense. of people are <laughs> shooting in ProRes now. I, I think that the, also the, the, as a news gathering device, you know, this just took a huge jump. Like, so if you're an editor oh. in Resolve and, and to go back, it's going into your bins as someone's doing news coverage, that becomes a pretty profound way to make a fast turn. You know, with a you have a camera with a cellular connection, able to um, dump f- files as they're shooting from the Ukraine or from you know wherever. That's a it's a game changer. Go ahead, Courtney.
4: Yeah, what I think they did is they just took the uh, Blackmagic uh, five inch twelve K video assist code and user interface and everything in there, and then piped the iPhone camera into that. And it'd be an easy ARM translation. So that's why it looks so familiar and all the controls look the same as the video
0: assist. And uh, it's, it's an easy transition, but they added the cloud stuff. You know? And the, and, and the, the reality is, is that the hardest part of building software oftentimes is figuring out what to do, not how to do it. <laughs> you know, especially when they've already done it once. So the interface, might not changing the interface very much, you know, and we have to remember that you know, Blackmagic's a big company. You know, they've got a lot of programmers. So, it, you know, anything that they decide to point towards, I mean, we think of them, we don't, we're not conscious to it because they don't show us their headquarters very often. But there's a lot of people down there working, um, you know, so the, the numbers I've heard thrown around and informally are they probably about three times as many programmers working on Resolve than, than Adobe has on Premiere. <laughs> so so it's, it's, you know, so I think that it's, you know, and so there's a pretty big staff. Uh, go ahead, Jason.
1: Far and away, my favorite thing about this app is that by default, right, you plug it in here, and if I put that lead in, you're seeing, uh, keep in mind, it's vertical, right? And then when I switch it horizontal, it goes vertical again, and it if that is the default behavior, which makes such mm-hmm. a difference when, you know, you're yeah. trying to deal with this stuff.
3: Thank you, Bill. Very quickly, yesterday's show, Calvin Roberts, which was a fabulous show, and you should all go back and watch that. Um, He's talking about how he had to schlep all this gigantic gear. This completely eviscerates that. And having worked in ENG, electronic news gathering, for for a group that did TV stations, I don't think anything other than pocket smartphones are going to be capturing news in the very short future. The idea of having to go out with a full crew to I, do
0: something other than maybe a sit-down interview where you want it to be lit perfectly gone. I lived mostly in D.C. for, uh, for a couple months in 2019 or 18 and all you saw were these foreign, all the foreign news. They were all out there with iPhones, and they would literally set the thing down, and they had, they'd, be, they'd stand back and hold a mic and talk into the into the camera, and go. I mean, they were, it was all one person just giving hits from different parts of D- DC. It was an, it was kind of, and only a couple of years before that. They, were, they had a camera crew and an audio person and everything else. Now it's just a reporter that knows how to use an iPhone. Uh, to go back to the question of time code, you can always get time code in if you drop it into the right channel as a, an audio input. So uh, we've used that for years. So you could do it and mix still have audio, your mic on one side and your, uh, your audio coming in on the other. Next question.
1: Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, B.C., Canada. Thoughts on Black Magic live stream event from Thursday. Lots of really great products, but what other problems are you looking for them to solve? Greg Grant.
7: I, I mean, just in general, the the announcement was really interesting. In this week of having other announcements that are happening, particularly Apple, and they had these. Skits that happened, and they had all this kind of fanfare that happens that they that, that Apple does that we enjoy, and here's uh, a good Aussie, uh, another Grant who just gets on and says, "Hey, I'm Grant from Black Magic." And let's get straight into it. It was like 14 seconds of intro and he was like, okay, we've got a new router. It's 80 by 80. And, you know, it was like, there's the update. And it was like, he just bang, 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 there it is. And, and no no, no extra marketing or anything. It was just, I, I, I think it's I think it's the Aussie in him, but he's so practical. And I also think that the pricing of their products is set in that way, that, that there isn't an ex, a bunch of extra marketing, um, you know, bloat in their in their um, pricing, and so I think that makes a big difference. But yeah, I was, I was, it was great to see SRT, um, which was very interesting to see that in the in the web presenters, that it was just kind of sitting there, that they could do that sort of encoding or rewrapping it, and and make that work. But interesting that they couldn't do 265 um, encoding on the Web Presenter HDs, but they can on the 4K, which says that they had it kind of sitting there. They've got a 265 encoder on the chip just kind of sitting there waiting for them to do a firmware upgrade and release that. Um, That's a pretty cool thing that Blackmagic does do. Uh, that there's things sitting there waiting to be sent out, but um I, I guess I was hoping to see PTZs and you know all that sort of stuff but but one day maybe I, I will say after watching both
0: of the of the keynotes, I think that for me, the black magic keynote was better than the apple keynote for probably one hundredth of the cost <laughs> you know, so I felt you know, like so so the um you know the uh, uh, the black uh, the apple The Apple keynote came down to, hey, we've got a great new camera. And like, you know, like everything else to me was just kind of like, okay, you know, like, and the first half an hour was a complete waste of my time, you know, and, and I think that it was, I think that Apple just filled it with a lot of fluff. And, and I think that they they had very little to talk about and they you know the 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 phone the, the, the watch was a minor upgrade, which is great if you're buy, if you're thinking of buying an ultra um, but so the but they spent an enor- enormous amount of time on something that just was not that big of a deal. Uh, most of the upgrades for the iPhone were you know incremental, which is fine. Um, the camera has me buying the camera buying the, buying the <laughs> that's what all of us look for is the camera and then we just go and move on so I feel like I think Apple um, put a lot of great production value into it. But I felt like the, that I was much more rapt, you know, like looking at all the things that Grant was doing and he does them so subtly and he does them. So just kind of like, okay, now I'm going to show you this thing. And every once in a while, I was like, what? <laughs> like what? And so, so the, uh, and well, you know, for a lot of these things, there was just a lot of jumping out at it. I think he cut over that, that router pretty quickly because a lot of us have been, I mean, we harangue Every person we talked to at Black Magic of I need something bigger than a forty by forty twelve G, and we just it just it is this. Um, and I think he just was like, okay, fine. Here's your router. Now I'm going to move on. You know, like like you know, like I think that he doesn't care. I don't think Grant cares about the routers. <laughs> so, so so and so, I think he was like here here you go uh and and now I'm going to move on to the things I'm interested it's in got a really, cameras
7: it's got a nice chuck it's got yeah. a chuck in the knob it's really that. <laughs> that's really exactly nice. <laughs> Tell us about that, about that clutch <laughs> one clutch. other yeah.
0: things <laughs> he likes but but the router itself i just felt like it was, we couldn't get his anybody at black magic I mean, we got people's attention because we were just talking about it all the time like i just i'm just dying here you know for for an 80 by 80 or i wanted a you know obviously a bigger one but but the um uh, but the but we have a seventy-two by seventy-two that was stuck to ten eighty p because of that you know and, and we would have bought hundred percent would have bought the eighty by eighty which I think is actually less expensive than the seventy-two that we got because it's the old fashioned big one that's that that has cards and stuff like that so anyway um, uh, but I think it was I think it was a really really great. I I think it's just a great demo. It was, I don't think there was a lot of fat in it. I think he just walked through and explained what the things were. Um, I always think the multi-camera is not, the cameras don't quite match, which I think is funny because they make cameras. Um, But, uh, but I think that they're all always pretty close and and it has this weird thing where you feel like they recorded it, but then it feels live, like they didn't quite, I think, I don't know whether they're adding kind of the imperfection to it or not, but uh, it it feels a little um, either forced or just not quite finished. Uh, Go ahead, Courtney.
4: Uh, yeah, I was really surprised by the fact that there was no mention of 2110. I mean, the only products yeah. that they even have now with that on it is the Decklink IPs. There's three new ones of those, but, and they didn't even mention those, I don't think, and that uh, they've been out, I think, for a while, but, um, that really surprised me in the fact that the new consoles didn't mention really much of interface differences they did uh, mention on the on the big uh, production hubs the big uh, routers that they changed the internal structure so that you could replace on one row of uh, SDI inputs if something goes bad, which has always been a problem with those because once the connector fails or one of the input fails on one of the inputs, you know, it's write it off. Don't use this input anymore until... uh, uh, and it we, couldn't be fixed. In the past. We had, we you didn't had one, want it, you know, anch- someone turned that thing into a boat anchor because
0: three of them go dead, you know. So we had we had a, we had one of the older ones, and someone had stepped on one of the cables, and we had to put a sticker over it that said forty by thirty nine. <laughs> you know, we had a piece of tape over it. <laughs> so it was uh, that was one of the older ones. But the, the, the larger routers that they had, the seventy two by seventy twos and the one forty four by 144s, had they those did cards. Have removable them. cards yeah, yeah, those those are removable cards, so we could we could swap them, and we and we have uh, Jesse.
2: Not only did the cameras not match, they kept crossfading between them, which felt like a relic of like 70s, 80s public broadcasting. It was a very odd choice. Um, Grant is so good at building trust. It it blows my mind every time he just slips little turns of phrase in th- phrases in throughout that that make me just feel like all in on the company. And the one that caught me on this was every time he talked about a bug on this on this broadcast he kept going, yeah so that was really annoying and we fixed it and I, I just I appreciate his <laughs> candor so much I, I just
0: think that that's one of the reasons that the black magic Keynote is better than than the Apple ones now. Is just because there's a level of authenticity. This is the owner of the company, and it, and it really is. Black Magic is an expression of Grant Petty. <laughs> like, you know, like it's it's and this is his this is his baby. These are the things that he cares about, and he's here to share them with you. Is incredibly powerful. Like just an incredibly powerful way to approach it. When you have all these big companies that he's competing with that are just kind of faceless, you know, com- giant companies with you know people who who do these things. Um, there's something about having. It feels like you're dealing with a small company, even though it's a massive company. Um, it, it just feels very uh, like you know them. You know, there's just some kind of parasocial relationship there that, you, that builds up. Uh, go ahead, Chris.
6: Alex, I got the sense, uh, I, I agree, the cameras didn't match well, um, and the dissolve was ridiculous. Uh, but did you feel that the, the pop ins and outs was the same angle, or were those two cameras very close to each other? I think it was the I, same sensor, same I, lens. I, I I don't know for sure. I thought that it was two separate cameras that were really near each other, and I
0: didn't understand why. Like, I thought that they maybe had a wide and a close next to each other, and they were popping between the two, and and not having it. And I couldn't... And then I also couldn't decide whether they were just... They had recorded this a couple times and were jump-cutting. I, I couldn't I don't think quite. they were
6: jump-cutting between different takes. It, the, the The dialogue was too smooth. It was too smooth to be... You know, right. unscripted dialogue to be able to do that, super hard to do. Super hard right, right. to do. Um but um, almost immediately I thought, oh, they're gonna show a box that is one camera in, two framings out. Oh, like right. like, yeah. like I thought that's what they were going to uh, uh be announcing. Um but the two different feeds, I think it was the same. Mm-hmm. image sensor. I think some, huh. I think some new director kid said, Hey, watch this grant. I'm well, going to do and, this. And-,
0: and those aren't hard to do. I mean, if you're doing only 1080p, you run it, you run it into the switcher and then you convert yeah. one down. If you, if, <clears throat> if only you had enough Terranex to do this, <laughs> you know, um, you know, so <laughs> to, to make that happen. go, go ahead, Mitchell.
5: Yeah. If he wants me to trust him just a little bit more, a jump cut would be nice. <laughs> uh, next question.
1: <laughs> Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia, writes in: With the new BMD camera app for iOS devices, can it be controlled by the ATEM Mini?
0: Uh, I will say not yet, but I wouldn't put it out of the question. There's no reason why, if you're sending this IP information, you couldn't uh, do it. And I don't know if if, if uh, I don't know if we have a question about this later. But notice that there's a REST API for the new cameras. Ooh. That means you can change all the settings from the web. <laughs> that means that the camera, if you you can plug into the new cameras with USB-C. And go out to Ethernet and you can change settings in that camera. For those of us who have been using these cameras as remote cameras, that's a big deal. So I don't think most people would see it, but if I'm sending out kits to people, that's that's why we have, that's why O90 has so many of these cameras is we built kits that we'd send out. And the hardest thing that we had to do with that camera was we had to send a whole switcher just to control the camera because we couldn't get to it any other way but through the switcher to shade it and everything else. Now, I'm going to theoretically be able to see the camera and be able to shade the camera um, and do all the other things that I, theoretically, we don't know how deep the the REST API is. But theoretically, I can change LUTs, I can change other things, change all the settings. All of those things can be changed in in my head until we see the API uh, from, you know, from a REST command, which is powerful. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I'm not sure how they'd get the that uh, information back over the HDMI unless they use uh, audio return. No, no, it's right it's it's you through the chat. USB-C. So it's the, there's a USB C in the camera and you can use the USB-C as a controller. Uh
4: okay. But but uh, the, its output would come into the ATEM Mini over what?
0: Oh over the HDMI. But, over I'm saying the network. but I'm saying that we we do a lot of things where we don't have an ATEM Mini. Um, anyway, I, I jumped out, but, but, oh, you mean know, for the BMD camera, well, it yeah, can talk over that's what I'm saying for the this but, question is, does the camera app allow
4: it to be controlled from the ATM Mini? And I was going to say, how would they get the control but, signals back into the app?
0: Because is now they, you, have, you have got the uh, USB-C to HDMI output. But, it. but the, you know, the panels and the, and the switchers all talk to each other over IP. So th- there's no reason why you couldn't set something up where it was talking to the, the camera outside That's of the true. XMI. It could go it doesn't over need to have, could go doesn't over need to come back yet. to it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Go, and you could also have a camera converting to the ethernet <laughs> and go into the, the newer switchers with ethernet. Go ahead, Bill.
3: Since there's cameras now in a stereoscopic array, how much time before we can get a, just turn both cameras on and give me a wide and a medium out of those two cameras?
0: Yeah, and with the studio, with the new studio camera, um, you know, we have, we built rigs. I I just, I was spelunking the other day in the garage and I found my, I have, I I actually have a rig for those little production cameras for stereo. So I'm going to dust them off and see if I can get two of those cameras to shoot some stereo. Um, Next question.
1: Douglas Carmichael writes in, Grant mentioned that the BMD 80x80 80 80 video hub was designed to be repaired with each channel on an individual card. Is there a response? Is this a response to the right to repair laws? And will we see more of this from BMD in the future? Go, Jesse.
2: I think a lot of companies use uh, repairs as an opportunity to nudge customers into a new purchase. And I never got the feeling that Blackmagic does this. They seem to do their repairs fairly close to cost. I don't think that this is in response to right to repair laws. I think this is like fundamental DNA of their company. And uh, yeah, this seems to be how they do business. It, going back, if you look back, that looks like how they build their equipment. And I imagine looking forward, they're going to continue building their equipment like this. Go ahead, Jason.
1: Each channel is not on an individual card. Each row of channels is on an individual That's card. Four, right? and he went. It four, it's four. I channels? thought it was eight, but um, he went so far as eight. to say straight away that in a pinch you can just open it and switch the boards out. Let's say if you're you know you're not using the last row, you can hot swap them up, and the the card won't care. So no, this has nothing to do with with right to repair, and everything to do with Grant just flexing about the modularity and, and ease of, of, of repair.
0: Well, and again, this isn't new for the, the, the routers that Blackmagic has made, just new for these, these more compact ones because the, the 72 by 72, 144 by 144, 288s, those all had replaceable cards of it, four at a time. So, so I think that those are, I think that this is just um, making it, you know, eight is a little bit of a bummer on my end because it just means that you're, you're swapping a card out for eight whole inputs. It might be 10. Looking Oof. at the back panel. Oof. I'll go ahead, Mitchell.
5: I think most engineers would look at that and say the more cross points, the law of averages would work against it because if it's a motherboard uh, that has a singular uh, uh, backplane on it, more chances of things going wrong. He's just sort of allaying that, that factor right. by saying it's modular. It's modular. You can insert another card. You can fix it quickly in the field.
0: Absolutely. And I don't, yeah, as... as was said earlier. I don't think that there's anything to do with right to repair. That's really around phones and consumer devices and in, in professional devices. There's no one's talking about right to repair, um, but but I think that it is. Uh, but it is a little more repairable than than Blackmagic has done in the past. Next John question: John Deere, isn't that professional? Just a uh, tractors. Tractor, I don't, I, we, that's, that's a whole nother second hour. I have a lot of opinions about the John Deere <laughs> thing on both, both for and, and, and pro. I have a lot of, I have a friend who actually built works on the interfaces for that. So anyway, next, next question.
1: Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York writes in, morning everyone. Did anyone on the panel catch if the new Blackmagic Cinema Sam- Camera 6K full frame is lacking camera control similar to the old Blackmagic 12K?
0: I believe that that is the case. So uh, I think that there was something that they insinuated in that in that discussion. Uh, you know, I, it has to. I think this has to do with the chip, the new chips and the new controllers that they had. That the twelve k. We thought at some point it would be controllable by the switcher. It never became controllable by the switcher, and it never will be. So uh, the um, 6K, I think that they just, with the 6K, they just declared, hey, we're not going to make the film cameras work the same way as the broadcast cameras. And so we're not, shade, you know, you can't shade them. So this is not, this, a new cinema, ca- you know, 6K is not a live camera. Like if you're thinking about using it as a live camera, um, it is not a live camera. It is built for film and they want to focus it rather than trying to do a little bit of everything for everyone. I think it's a bummer because I think that I would use it that way, um, but uh, it's not, you can't, you can't. Go ahead, Jason.
1: Yeah, Grant's aside on this matter was we've got a lot of room, which means there are probably chips in there that are that are doing things that have yet to be unlocked, but he straight up said, You know, we saved a lot of space by by not putting the the shading control in the camera. Go ahead, Bill.
3: Yeah, there's a traditional break in cameras between ENG and EFP field production. The latter category is mostly I'm going to execute shots one by one as opposed to needing this. Now, granted, into a live feed be nice to have these, but I think they're thinking like a cinematographer thinks where you don't need a lot of external control because everything is set to execute that shot correctly.
0: Yeah, I think that the, the hopefully that there's good Bluetooth control or something like that, but I will say that that when you get an opportunity to work with full frame sensors for live, it's pretty great <laughs> so, so it's 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 a little hard for the to have the cameras go backwards in my opinion but i understand it i mean i think that they're movies that again i think the hard part with doing uh and sony doesn't do it on their their smaller cameras either but uh global shutter is a big deal for filmmaking so when you say you have a high-end film camera you got to really be thinking about global shutter because you do notice it shaky can you know put it on a car you have fast action scenes it really you really need global shutter go ahead courtney yes cello cam they
4: did introduce uh for the live stuff uh, the new studio cameras you know so uh they do have new sensors and new inputs and outputs and controls over them so that was good
0: yeah no they're definitely um making that adjustment where i think that they're they're defining these are absolutely studio cameras these are film cameras uh, again i think that i and i think that what's missing now is I, the at first attempt was the 12k but i really think that that what we should be thinking, what hopefully Blackmagic's thinking about, is a is a box camera that is that costs ten thousand, fifteen thousand dollars, somewhere in that range. Um, that is larger. Like I think that after Oppenheimer, I think that there is an opportunity for a IMAX <laughs> size sensor um, that is like eighteen k. Um, that no one's built yet, and I think Blackmagic is probably the the most set up to build that. That sensor for that, um, there's this. You know, Oppenheimer kind of changed a lot of things about Isn't how this we think about Sony sixty-five or um, have a sensor
4: that size. Uh, that I, they use I, it's for not the same size. As, I,
0: they're used for IMAX capture, and they're they're definitely a larger sensor. But I don't think that they're the full IMAX size sensor. I mean, they they are IMAX um, approved as a digital sensor. But if you want to take advantage of the full IMAX aperture, uh, I believe you're still doing that's what I mean. What was used by Nolan was film cameras to do that. Um, you know, so that's, that's how you capture it for that, for that full size. Next question.
1: Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, BC, Canada. What do you think, uh, Black Magic's reluctance may be to be releasing a box format cinema camera? Why stick to a stills body style?
6: Go to Chris. You know, Alex, you said that, uh, you know, Black Magic is, uh, is really an extension of Grant Petty. And I think that, what we see out of Black Magic is quite often it's sort of the mind of of Grant Petty. What does Grant, in Grant's production and business background, feel is a need? And I I think the best way to affect change in the Black Magic um, ecosystem would be to become a drinking buddy with Grant Petty, like to just hang it's out petty. with the. No, seriously, to just hang out and and expose him to other ways of of thinking about things i, I, I think I think we're always going to see what grant wants it's it's kind of like you know you know what would Steve Jobs do what would what does Grant mm-hmm. want in his production pipeline next Here you go Jesse
2: uh, <clears throat> Sorry, they did release a box format. the The Micro Cinema is, uh, I believe, their most honest camera in their entire line since they started making cameras. That feels like the the most accurate representation of what the the black magic sensor is doing i'm glad to see the return of the micro i think they stick with the stills body because that's where the r&d has been um i do believe that they should have moved away if they were moving away from the pocket naming they should have moved away from the body as well that that feels like a pretty big miss
0: yeah i i was really excited about the studio i i man if that studio was super 35 or even full, like the the thing is the new lx one from Sony, full frame sensor in a small little body uh, is really compelling. And so I think that the, the I would have loved to see them move past the four thirds size. You know, I, I get it, but I, I, I you know, and, and it's a huge upgrade. Like I have, I used to own, I think, 15 of those little guys. And um, the little changes they made, the regular power not having to go through a pin, the USB-C input, the you know, the all the things that they – oh, and, and let me tell you, he did say people were a little annoyed with the last um, – uh, the way that they, the SDIs worked, a little annoyed – is the understatement of the world. (laughs) Like it was, you had to buy, Laird was the only ones in my opinion that made connectors for that DIN. It's a DIN 2.3, 1.0, I think, or whatever, 3.2, 1.0. Laird was the only ones that made them that were easy to get in and on on and off of those. And I had hundreds of those cables (laughs) and they were, we went through lots of different ones to get them otherwise you're like sitting there, you know, saying horrible words on set, trying to get the thing off. Um, So just having little SDI, you know, BNCs is great. Uh, Mitchell?
5: Yeah, I think the stills body style, it's the form factor, and people like holding it in their hand. It just feels comfortable if you're going to shoot. So if you're uh, in into holding it in your hand, a box camera requires a build-out on a tripod and all kinds of other jazz. A, uh, a form factor that's like a stills camera, it's right it your hand. You can shoot with it much easier. Good, Bill.
3: What both Jesse and Mitchell said resonates with me. The other thing is that you've got a line already that's producing this cage, this body, basically. So making adaptations to it is way quicker to market than starting with a blank piece of paper and designing a brand new form factor for the body. So I think it's just a matter of this was the easiest, fastest,
1: get it out there and make it great path they could take. Next question. Oh, let's see. Graham Cardwell in Belfast, Northern Ireland, writes in Black Magic Camera App versus Filmic Pro. Can the free legacy version of the Filmic compete with the new BMD camera app, and can the app be used as a camera source for Zoom?
6: Chris? Basically, yeah, Aston answered. I think this kills Filmic. They should just pack up and go, you know, uh, buy a lawnmower and become gardeners. They're done uh, in business. And yes, you can... uh, You can get a clean feed out of the HDMI from the Blackmagic camera, and use it in Zoom if you wanted to do that.
0: And I, you know, and I've experiences of having software that was basically "quote unquote" Sherlocked in the in the thing. And the best thing to do is just to get you save your pennies, uh, just reduce reduce. You know, like we just immediately moved on. You know, it was, uh, and um, we just were like, well, that's it, and we didn't really try to fight at all, and we took our profits and ran.
6: (laughs) So. Is Sherlocking somehow related to jumping the shark? What's the origin of the term Sherlock? Oh.
0: There was a there was a search system that um, that used to be called Sherlock on the Mac, and Apple just released their search system and that just completely replaced it. Like it was a third party app called Sherlock that when, when you hit the space bar or whatever, and that little comes up, that's what Sherlock did. And when Apple added it, it Sherlock them, you know, and, and uh, they, I mean, it, it killed Sherlock. I mean, it was like, like that same thing that we just saw here. It was just, their market was done and they were, they were, they, uh, you know, they complained a little bit, but now that's how it became the term. And that was probably 15 years ago. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah.
4: Just cut and run. Think of all the money they'll save filmic and your uh, tech support calls that you can
0: now ignore. <laughs> Um, but I don't know, you know, anything that Filmic would add, Blackmagic has just way more engineers. Like it's just, it, you know, you're just fighting now against a, a company that has decided this is a market that they want. And th- there's nothing that you have that, I don't think there's anything that they have that would be able to compete with it. Because, you know, because also, well, anyway, you know, I think that Blackmagic has a pretty close relationship with the manufacturer of the phone. So so I just think that that's, that's the, um, I think that that'll be, I think it's just, there's no way to compete there. Next question.
1: Douglas Carmichael writes in, do you think we're going to see smaller 4K constellations from BMD soon? Um, uh, maybe at
0: NAB. Uh, and, and, you know, there are, you know, I think that they're, they're definitely looking to compact. I will say that that panel was genius. So the panel didn't look like a big change, but a big problem that we have loading into locations is where to put that panel. You know, and having a panel that is not taking up your whole desk, that half rack, was genius I I was you know it's not like I I just want to underline that was a huge upgrade for people that are doing smaller shows not even smaller shows it it goes wide but going wide instead of deep is really really useful for for those of us who are on a 30 inch uh, 30 inch deep (laughs) um, uh, table that has other things on it yeah go ahead ground
7: yeah it's also the reach of that too right the 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 existing yeah. one with you know it's like so i've got the the older um, 1me advanced panel and the the problem is you just don't have enough buttons you can you can shift and yeah. things but you really want the more buttons so that that's a that's an amazing upgrade uh, there, and, there is and by the still, way this they, is a,
0: it's hidden as a 4me panel right because it's got the selectors yeah. for the 4mes it's just that you don't have them all exposed at one time the other thing that i thought was interesting that, that if you look at it carefully the, the 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 two me the two panels were talking to the switcher at the same time so you could have multiples of these all stacked to it basically gives you a way to build a modular for me doing what you wanted it to do yeah go ahead Grant.
7: yeah it's a much better much better way of doing it because you can have multiple people that have the same sort of access across the different me's and we've done that same same sort of thing and we find the one me panel is easier to do than than having the 2me or the 4 but um to to douglas's question there is still the old gray um production um 4k um switches that they they have apparently still available so they might roll those in but I, i just don't think um, there's a huge market to go to 4K at like a 20 input or something. I th- I think um, they've got those HD models now, and then you want to do the 4K, then you pay the extra and you get the 40 inputs, um, and away you go. So I don't know whether they'll whether they'll um, upgrade those older ones or not. They've kind of they've kind of made this new 4K, 8K, 8K, 4K, and 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 HD versions, but that seems like it suits the market.
0: I used to wish that they put more super sources in until we had mix effect. <laughs> Once we had mix effect and we were able to very quickly get between super sources, uh, it didn't matter. I I'm still amazed that black magic didn't just buy mix effect or, or, you know, it, it like if you have a, a switcher that has a super source on black magic switcher that has a super source and you don't have mix effect, you're only getting like a quarter of the switcher, <laughs> like, like you know, like it's, it is literally a four X multiplier against every, every one of those guys, Chris.
6: Yeah. I will say as a somebody who used to switch in, you know, on big switchers, uh, uh, sitting down at a big switcher is kind of cool. I'm just going to, I'm not going to lie. It's <laughs> it, its pretty dope to sit mm-hmm. there and like, boom, just a wall, you know. And I'm waiting to see somebody to, to kind of like pull a sort of, I don't know if this reference hits with everybody. Does anybody know who Daryl Dragon was? He was like the... Oh yeah, the captain. The, yeah, the captain from Captain Tennille. I want to see somebody take a, a stack of those and stack them on a keyboard rack. You know, like like, you know, like 80s rock band you know with multiple keyboards like there you go there's your 4ME, 4me stacked high instead of deep yeah i'm saying i'm just saying there's there's things to explore here
0: i mean one of the things i'd really like to see is a protocol that they, that they have to, to talk to two switchers at the same time and the reason for that is really to be able to tie it in for redundancy um, so being able to have one panel controlling two two switchers would be really useful i there's not there's ways to hack that but i think black magic should allow you to do that from the ground up
6: the problem with that is the little box that you plug the two switchers into that go to the two switchers, that box will break. And now you have now so much for redundancy. <laughs> Those boxes have broken a lot less
0: often than the than the switchers. Uh, next question.
1: All Walhoose in Austin, Texas writes in, how do you set up your Mac to dual boot to Sonoma or your current OS? And how do you set it to boot from an external drive? Jason? Okay, first things first, although it is possible and you can google it and find all sorts of videos about how to do this, do not do this with your internal drive. Take this from an expert, please don't do this or you can get really sideways. Easy way to do it is with an external drive. That's easy because you have good I.O. and it's fast enough. So you essentially will just format a a high speed SSD externally, download the beta and install it on that disk. From there, you hold down the option key. When you're booting, you may have to type in your password in order to get the actual boot. It will come back around, allow you to select your disk and you will boot from the external disk and you'll be done. Next question. Uh Oleskoff of Tropovov in Kyiv, Ukraine writes in, what do you think about OBS bot air tail or I'm sorry tail air? Could it be the game changer for one man stream teams? What is your opinion about the potential of its particular picture quality through NDI and HDMI?
0: I think that it's probably going to be fine. I, I don't think that the NDI and HDMI coming out of that camera specifically will look that dramatically different. So I think that you probably could be able to use that there um, to make that happen. So I, I would probably, if I was a one person doing these and that you were using a couple of these, I think you're probably now talking about a software switcher like vMix or Memo Live, um, or Ecamm or other things like that, that you're going to bring a couple of these cameras in. Um, you know, or of course, because it has HDMI, I believe it does have HDMI out. Uh, you could put it into a hardware switcher like an ATEM. Um, I, I, you know, I don't think you'll, you'll lose the controls, I believe, if you do that. Um, the OBS bot, I, I will say that the OBS bot software on the Mac, I mean, if you're using it on a PC, it may work fine. On the Mac, it's a little, um, rough around the edges. So uh, so I would um, probably lean towards the, I'd still lean towards the link right now, unless you're gonna be able to take advantage of the OSC controls or API for the OBS bot. The, I didn't find the software to be particularly compelling on the Mac, um, but on the PC, it could work fine. I just haven't tested it there. Uh, next question.
1: Eric Kurtz in Hartford, Connecticut writes in, does the AWS Elemental Link have an option to send a local server as well as AWS? Can it send multicast stream?
0: No, <laughs> I cannot do that. The AWS link is designed to tie into the AWS cloud. It is, it is a very, very mission-specific system um, that is designed to deliver a Zixi plus elemental secret sauce server um, defined in code. And what I mean by that is that, is that the, 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 when the link ties into AWS, AWS tells the link how it wants to get the data and the link then will send it to it. So it's a um, server-defined delivery system and that's really powerful because then then you're never having a mismatch between what the encoder is doing and what the servers uh, are expecting. Oftentimes when you see glitches in people's live streams every every second or every three seconds or every whatever. That's because for instance the GOPs aren't aren't lining up. So the server says, I'm expecting two second GOPs and you're sending three second gops and what you end up doing is it it, it can't when it's re-encoding that you're getting into P frames and B frames where they don't belong. And so your GOPS, for instance, as an example. Now, some, some encoding systems will make adjustments. They'll say, oh, I see what you're doing, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll adjust, but not all of them. And so, um, so it's, it's more powerful to have the server just say, this is what I want. And that's how the Clearcaster worked for, for Facebook as well. It would tie into Facebook, and it would um, get that information about how it should encode and then encode it the most efficient for the, the subsystem. And go ahead, Grant.
7: Yeah, in theory, that's how it works. Uh, my my recent testing is kind of the, in the last week or so has been I've been having problems with the link uh, where where the image is breaking up. Um, to your point, like it, it, it's actually getting like lot. Sorry, lines of blocks and and things that are breaking up in the image, and and it seems to me like the setting within Media Live is not quite right because then I can do an RTMP uh, stream from a web presenter. And it's, in the, it's clean. Into AWS. It's clean. And it's clean. Into AWS, into Media live, it looks great. Which has made me think, this is the question that relates back to Blackmagic. Should I just be using the web presenters, which have that beautiful interface, so I can monitor that, and do SRT into MediaLive, um, might be better in, in this circumstance than the link. That I can't monitor really anything in the same I, way that I can I, with a web presenter.
0: I will tell you that... that I. I in fact, I told Elemental, <laughs> you know, in some meeting somewhere, like, "Hey, look at what Black Magic's doing on the on the the telemetry on the Black Magic stuff is really really good." Um, but the I think that the uh, the Zixie theoretically is more stable. I don't know why you're having that problem. We the one thing that we found has been rock solid, other than the power supply connections for the first generation yeah. of the links um, the, the one thing that's been, they've been rock solid. You plug them in, you point them and you go, the only th- time we've had an issue is when you leave them on for a very long period of time by accident. Not only do you get a large, um, uh, a large bill Douglas, I, I, I see why you're concerned because I had to pay that bill. Um, and, and yeah, so the, um, but you also get a, uh, um, uh, you get some errors with audio and so on and so forth. So, um, it doesn't like to be on for, anyway, that's what we found. Anyway, next question.
1: Uh, Jeff Flukiger writes in from Elkhorn, Wisconsin, remember way back when Apple came out with the parallax effect on iPhone, where if you tilted the phone, you could see the icons move slightly. I wonder if spatial video footage will be viewable on an iPhone and utilize something similar. Thoughts? Bill?
3: I can't believe that it wouldn't. You know, Apple, when they program their APIs, particularly like core graphics and core video and those things, they've built so much of this management of depth perception into those. Remember when we used to get the, the galleries and every every little icon for your music or whatever had a reflection that was really beautifully rendered? It didn't take a lot of overhead because that code was built into the deepest part of the systems. They've been doing that for 10 years now. So the fact that they will be able to take spatial footage and render it out to phones, the Vision Pro things and everything else without very much overhead at all, I think is a kind of a given. Courtney? I doubt it because that, that was just a
4: rendering effect that was just shifting the uh, icon layer back and forth over the background so I don't think you could do it with spatial video. There were 3D phones back in the day in the, at the turn of the century uh, 2002 on there were probably about 20 of them that had lenticular displays on the back of them that would show you a 3D image uh, when you looked at it and they had 3D cameras on the front of them uh, Sharp made them, Hitachi made them, Samsung made them, uh, but they were all abandoned fairly quickly within about 2 or 3 years so I doubt they'll be stepping back into that
1: mess again. Next question. Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas writes in, Google has given a small group of companies access to an early version of Gemini AI modeling. This company nears the launch of the GPT-4 Rival. Has anyone used Gemini? Go, John. Very
8: excited about Gemini. So Google and DeepMind, Google AI. Google Mind and, and uh, DeepMind were bifurcated for years until six months ago they brought those teams together and Gemini is the work that DeepMind's been working on for the last 10 years. They were acquired in 2014 and so we really look
1: forward to Gemini. It's an arms race it's, and we'll be the benefactors. Next question. Eric Kurz in Hartford, Connecticut, writes in, the new Videon Max encoder can send AWS in a multicast stream. What are your thoughts about using multicast as an IP-based confidence monitor solution rather than NDI or SDI?
0: I think it depends on how many computers are connecting. I mean, typically multicast gives you an advantage that it's a low hit on the encoder, but you can have lots of uh, clients that are pulling it. If you're sending it out to a monitor or two monitors, you probably don't need it. But if you are sending it out to 8, 10, 20 monitors, we've definitely used multicast to do that. The main issue that you have related to that is making sure that your network is going to support it. Um, so a lot of times the the ports and a lot of the, the the transports that are required from multicast are not supported on the network. And um, that becomes uh, problematic and takes a little bit more work uh, to do that. You really have to be dedicated to doing multicast and have an IT th- Department that's dedicated to multicast to make it work. Go ahead, Grant.
7: If you're talking about confidence monitors, as in having lots of monitors around, and that's possibly what you're saying because of the of the um, multicast, an old great way of doing it is using like the CATV um, conversion. So you could convert convert to um, like a coaxial. And then you can connect directly to your TVs. You can you can split that. You connect it into the TVs, and then you just tune in the channel. And now that works really well in big locations where you have lots of TVs all around, and you can multicast in a in a way that you have lots of channels. And now each one of those users on those TVs can choose what they want to be able to see, including a bunch of cable channels. Um, so it's a it's a really great way of doing it. It's really cheap. You're not putting another converter on the other at the end of the TV because it's already got that in um that decoder built into the tv next question
1: douglas carmichael writes in how have supply chains been lately bnh quotes that the yamaha dm 3d console will be available in may 2024 why would it be such a long date mitchell uh, just a slight aside it was interesting to hear grant perry
5: mention that they stopped making one camera because they couldn't get parts for it
0: it's a big problem. I mean, it's still a big problem. And it's still kind of working its way through the system. And so uh, it'll be interesting. And a lot of it has to do, I think, also with a lot of cars and subsystems and other things needing the same components because of the advances in the cars and everything else. Everybody's, there's a larger market looking for the same things. And I think we're still recovering from, in some cases, I've heard from the AKM fire that really destroyed an entire subsystem that made this work. Uh, Courtney, real quick. Uh, Yeah, the global political situation has put a
4: lot of pressure on chip manufacturing coming out of China. So there's a lot of boycotts and stuff going on. So that
0: could definitely affect the uh, supply lines. Coming up tomorrow, uh, we will be doing, um, we have. Panelist meetings and volunteer meetings uh, tomorrow morning. You can see in the email that goes out, uh, you can you can actually sign up. And I might I might put that into the into uh, an, all, an at everyone, just so everyone knows where it's at. But if you're interested in being a panelist, or you have questions about being a panelist, or concerns about being a panelist, or complaints about being a panelist, uh, all of those things are, are great for the panelist meeting. Same thing with volunteers: uh, concerns, questions, <laughs> complaints; those are all great for that. So uh, so that's where that is tomorrow morning. Uh, you can sign up from the email, and of course, we're covering IBC tomorrow. Uh, right after uh, it is taking over the show sorry not right after the show taking over the show and we've got a little demo for you right here European members of the Office Hours community are heading to the International Broadcast Convention in the Rye Center in Amsterdam to bring you the latest
7: broadcast trends and technologies to Office Hours live from the exhibition floor Join us on the 16th of September for the latest trends in broadcasting technologies.
2: And this year, we are especially focusing on finding solutions for your production
0: problems. Let us know what you would like to see, what problems you need to be solved, over on officehours.global/ibc. Not only was that a well put together video, I just have to say how much I like as a host, have a 30 second break for a second. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, we have to do more of these videos. <laughs> it's just good. Before Bill will tell you, you know, like we before that we we uh it, it amen. It, it, it's like this thing where we read we read the thing up and then we and then we stop for a second and then we go to it. And I didn't, I never thought about how nice it would be until uh, our European crew put together that video. And I'm like, we have to do this all the time. I got to figure out something to put in there so that we can uh, that we can make that actually work. Anyway, today we're talking uh, for the second hour. Uh, we're talking about network uh, solving network challenges. And we don't really have a presentation for this, so this is really going to be up to all of you, unless someone unless we do and someone hasn't told me. Um, no, but, we
1: don't. We're straight questions.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is really an opportunity for you to uh, to ask questions. Uh, you know, the, I think all of us have very specific questions around uh, networking, trying to figure out how to deal with the LAN, the WAN, the VAN, the VLANs. <laughs> the VLANs? I've never said VLAN before, but the VLAN. Um, and uh, I, you know, I think that I was just talking to someone about the importance of you know, WAN based VLANs, you know, yesterday and talking about why we need them and what they do and how they work. And so, uh, but, but figuring out how all, all this connectivity works. Um, I think is really important. And we have an incredible group of experts here that know a lot about networking today. So what I would highly recommend is if you're listening here is get your, this is your opportunity, get your questions in uh, to, um, to, to the, to here and we'll answer your questions as we go. So please throw those in now. Um, you can also use the QR code. Uh, you can use it. We'll keep you tracking it all. Sometimes the second hour gets lost this way, but in this case, if you use the QR code here or use askofficehours.com, uh, if, if you watch this later, it's not going to work for this show. <laughs> Just put general questions in. But if you put them in during this hour, uh, you can we'll, we'll get them into the show. So let's go ahead and jump to the first question.
1: Dennis Champion Walker in uh, Radcliffe on Trent, UK writes in, I live in a care home where my internet connection is my iPhone's 5G. Can you recommend a router that would share my iPhone's hotspot with a local network?
0: You know, there's a couple, you know, the funny thing is, is that um, there was a, what we, we used to use this. Um. I'm trying to think of there. we, we, we've had things that we, that would attach to a wifi. Um, the fun, the old, I know this will sound crazy, but the old, uh, um, the old airports would do it. <laughs> if you had an Apple airport or it would actually, um, you know, take a wifi and deliver it. Of course, all your laptop, your laptop will do it. So you can take a laptop and say, Take my cellular in the sharing inside of a Mac, at least. Um, I'm sure it works on the PC as well. But in a Mac, when it says sharing, you go inside the sharing, you say share my cellular connection with Wi-Fi or with Ethernet or what, and it'll convert those. So we've used laptops to convert those as well. Uh, uh, Go ahead, uh, Grant. Sorry, I, yes, I, jumped, I jumped the gun. Courtney, go ahead. Go ahead
4: start. Oh, sorry. Uh, there used to be a mode on most routers called uh, access port extension so that you could use it as a an extender for an existing network. So you could set up the hotspot on your phone and then use it in access port extension to receive that hotspot over Wi-Fi and then extend it to other areas. Maybe that's
7: possible still. Go ahead, Grant. Before I answer that question, I was just going to drop some breaking news that Andy just put in Discord, which was that um, Zoom is going to be integrated into vMix 27. So, vMix being able to bring in Zoom uh, participants directly into vMix, that's a pretty big deal. Um,
0: Anyway, I just. That's great. Yeah, and that's going to be, that's really going to um, be great for uh, cloud, cloud integration. So now you can have, you know, so, I mean, it's going to be fine in the on-prem as well, but if you now, a lot of that, there's been a lot of lifting to serve up Zoom rooms and other things in the cloud to vMix, um, for virtual events. And now you can just simply open up vMix. And I, I don't know what the number is. I think if I remember correctly, the number is eight that's going to go into vMix, I I believe. So, um, so I think that it's going to be, yeah, go ahead, Grant.
7: Well, it's going to be interesting to see um, being able to just do ISO recording in the cloud too, right? Like as yeah. a backup recording, you spin up an instance, of vMix, have your four or five contributors that you're doing for an event and just let it record ISO. Yeah. Um, that that will be very handy. And, and then, of course, being able to switch as well. Um, and so, that, anyway, back to the, the, the actual the Regular question. scheduled program, um, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, there is a... Um, a brand that is really good for um, uh, for kind of these little travel routers. Um, so it's a GLINet, Net, and they have this uh, they have these uh, Wi-Fi six routers. Um, I've had a few of these over the years, and this latest one I just got in uh, a few weeks ago, and I've used it to do exactly what you're talking about, um, and that is to I, I can do. Uh, it has a failover in it, right? So it has a WAN input. Uh, you could take as a, as an Ethernet, and then a, the USB input um, can have a phone or or a, a like a, um, I use a five G router um, that I connect to it, and then the software is really powerful to be able to do failover or even load um, balancing across multiple connections. And you can also, with this one, you can also share a Wi-Fi connection, which is what's particularly helpful. Um, I use these all the time on, uh, when I go and, and share in the in a hotel, I'll, I can reshare the Wi-Fi and then I can share it out to my Ethernet or, or, or anything that I need to. In fact, I even used it on... Uh, a cruise, a cruise ship, and I and I put it together with a um, uh, a, a USB battery in a little belt pack, a little and I walked around with it. And all the friends that I was with always knew I was coming close because their phones would auto connect to my Wi-Fi that was connected to the ship's Wi-Fi, and they would all get uh, free internet off of me. So they <laughs> they work really well. I highly recommend those. Make, way to make friends. Go Jason.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I can explain why you don't see a lot of these. So basically, the difference between a router and a a switch is that a router has DHCP and NAT traversal. And I'm going to try not to get too technical here, but your iPhone in being a hotspot inherently becomes a router. When you have two routers, um, it, it becomes even more complicated to take take something in, route it, then call it a gateway, then route it again and present it out again. There, there are a lot of ways that this can get tricky. The easiest way to do this is with the new iPhone 15. There you go, Fenwick. Um, get the USB-C uh, to Ethernet, and then Ethernet to any router you want. I know that's not the best answer. I think Grant already gave us the best answer, but if you wanted a little bit more background, I I, I think that'll be about about as good as you'll get. Next question. Beau Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina, writes, in what's your practice regarding static IPs? Do you assign on the computer or create DHCP reservations on the router? Go Tom.
3: Well, Whenever possible, I prefer to assign a static IP on the device itself, on the computer. If that's not possible, you can do a DHCP reservation, which of course will then make sure that that device gets the IP address that you want to assign. That's perfectly okay.
9: Seth? For me, it really depends. Um, So generally, by default, I do prefer uh, reservations on the router side, especially for remote equipment. That way, if something happens, it can move to another network, find an IP, I'll be able to track it down that way. Uh, However, Statically programmed addresses in certain devices, especially audio and video over IP, super mission critical. Um, I do like to program it in there, uh, in the actual device itself. Uh, It becomes especially important for mobile kits when you are off of a router or off of a DHCP server. Otherwise, those devices probably won't find each other. Uh, Lastly, though, something I do to really save myself is when I do statically program, I like to add that in as a reservation still. In the router, that way it serves as my uh, checklist for knowing what IPs are in use of my network. Jeff.
10: Good morning. Uh, my biggest question, uh, our biggest our answer is also the same thing. It depends, and it depends on the workflow that you're used to. My biggest uh, challenge in, in our live production work is moving gear around, and is it going to be in the same range? We recently are working on a full makeover of our IP structure uh, for that reason that we found we had some overlaps in different places, and this is where DHCP does come into play, where it makes it a little easier to move gear from basically from system to system we've got multiple ob trucks like six so whenever you're moving things around it it, uh, helps to have dhcp enacted but there are certain reasons that i want static ip on certain devices and the biggest issue that i have is whenever it's dhcp if i can't find it just by doing a angry ip uh search which is a great little software to scan your network and see what's out there uh if i can't find it then I'm just in never, never land looking for it. But with static IP, I can actually, see, the thing is, I don't want all my employees to have access to my router. So yeah, the IT guys, like Seth's probably going, well, just look at the router. But yeah, if you have control to it, I don't want to give that control to everybody. So I have them look at a sticker. Oh, look, there's the address, 30.1201, 12. Okay, then I go back to a computer and say, okay, ping, Dot 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 thirty dot twelve, there it is. It's working. Okay, it's a problem somewhere else. So it depends on on your infrastructure, how much gear you have, how big your subnets are. That's it. It takes more. We've grown a lot in the last two years, so now we're having to expand our our reach quite a bit
0: yeah I, I we at one time we had about uh, nine or ten kits that were floating around the world but we were, every time they came back in they were just reabsorbed into the into the warehouse and then rebuilt as they went out for specific kits and because of that movement uh, we really found that working with DHCP was a lot easier with reservations because um the all the reservations were in all the Meraki's that we were using, and so you just plug in a switcher, and it would just automatically give it the the IP. So all you had to tell me is what kit you were in, and I knew what the IP what number was for everything in that kit um, immediately. And I could just I just knew that there was one. There's going to be one one octet that was different. The rest of them are going to all going to be the same. And so it was, uh, and that made it much much easier for us to manage over time. Uh, we always then reserve a certain section inside of that. Uh, inside of the host addresses uh, for statics. So it'd be 50 to 100 addresses that are sitting there that are that are protected so that if we have things that need to be static or that we want to be static, we know where to put them um, so that there's a place open for that um, as opposed... You know, so the DHCP worked all around that. Um, next question.
1: Eric Kurz in Hartford, Connecticut, writes in, uh, what are various networking approaches to reaching thousands of on-premises employees with a live webinar? What are the advantages and disadvantages to each method and what are the costs?
10: Go ahead, Jeff. I can't hear you, Jeff. It was quieter last time. I, the, it doesn't really matter on the cost because it, it, there's way too much just to say, oh, it's going to cost $5,000 because that is a huge open-ended question. The, the thing about live webinars is everybody is like, oh, it's on the internet. We'll just go to the internet. We'll use the internet i.e. web, whatever it happens to be, whether it's Zoom, Teams, or even uh, good old-fashioned YouTube. When that happens, you're using bandwidth. And there's only... They're planning whenever they book bandwidth. They're not planning on X amount of bandwidth per X amount of persons to be live streaming the whole time. They're planning on I'm getting whatever bandwidth I have available and I can afford a budget at this time. Everything else is just whatever we have. So that is whenever they they do. And I've dealt with this multiple times like, oh, well, we have 100 people at this branch. And it was a DSL modem which is like, you know, one meg. It's like, well, of course they're not going to be able to see it. It's just stuttering. It's just stuttering. It's like, well, everybody's trying to watch it. I've had this happen in fairly large events, even with zoom that everybody's trying to watch it. So the, the thing is on site proper networking that can handle multicast, which is a higher end switch. It's not your $50 switch from Best Buy. It's a higher end switch. It needs to be able to handle multicasting, which is just on the local network. Then, The distribution side from the public is you have to be able to manage that. So you have to be able to get it into a venue. Say if you're going to a branch office, you need to get that into the venue and then manage multicasting in that spot for that 100 people or 50 people or 20 people. 20 people could bring down a branch office. So it just all depends on the number of people that are trying to see it. But it's not as simple as it seems. Go ahead, Grant.
7: Uh, yeah, I would just research uh, for Zoom if you want to use Zoom. The Zoom Mesh was a was a new feature that they announced at Zoomtopia last year, and that that is a specifically for webinar is a, a like an eCDN um, uh, product, and so it actually it actually get makes the client the Zoom client. Um, Reserve it over the local network to um, up to a bunch of, of clients on the local network. So it's actually um, dividing your outside bandwidth um, by a lot. And so it, it it's kind of re, it's kind of like um uh, like a BitTorrent almost like it's um it, it's a peer to peer sharing within the local network, um, and it's actually really simple to set up, um, once you've got it all turned on. Um, if you can find the settings all within the web portal of Zoom, <laughs> you find the right settings and and um, hold your mouth right, then it'll work. Um, and that's what's uh, uh it's worth looking into. And I think like um. Cisco's like their WebEx and all those they all have some similar things to being able to do this because it's a common problem um, in in modern offices of course the best way to do it is just move everyone to remote and they, they can all be at home, it's no problem? <laughs>
0: Use their own bandwidth. Uh, yeah, the, it actually has become less of a problem. I, I actually talked to someone a couple of weeks ago about this, that because all the employees aren't at home, they found that the, the headquarters, everyone could just watch the stream without too much impact. They were like, when, not, when, when it's not clustered so densely, it works actually pretty well. Uh, one of the companies that has been doing this the longest is called Collective. They used to be called Contiki and they've been around for probably, I don't know, 15 or 20 years. And they do a peer-to-peer solution um, and that has been something that they do. They've got a lot of uh, pretty good dashboards and setups, and, and it's, they were probably the ones that really all we used for this kind of thing 15 years ago was Contiki, uh, which now is Collective. Um, the And they've gotten a lot better. They were a little rough around the edges until they became Collective and got some investment, and they became a little bit more stable. Uh, but there's, you know, um, I know that Facebook Workplace uh, had done it, had built that into it. Zoom built in, it, it, it into it. The largest companies that we work with... You know the problem is is that your it's your gateway to the outside world that's the problem. You oftentimes have enough internal network if you're a really large company to stream a lot of this data, and they may use multicast. But a lot of the larger companies sometimes build their own basically a CDN inside of the company um, that is um, having you know an, a, a you know a, um, a, a you know the um, Uh, root and then all the all the edge servers so you're the origin servers and you're streaming you end up streaming externally to Akamai or something like that and internally to an origin server that's within the company and the company has its own edge servers that are designed for that location um that turns out to be from an IT perspective uh, more acceptable than multicast for a lot of these companies for a variety of reasons and so they they build that that basically building exactly what Akamai has but inside the companies um to make that actually happen and then they don't it's not impacting their bandwidth um going out to the rest of the world it's just it's just a matter it's the CPU problem at that point so um and then what they usually do there is they'll put that in a system by which the internal users just go to the regular web page, but when it sees that you're coming through the um, when you're coming through the network, it automatically just sees that you're inside the building and it hands you the video from the right place um, to um, to make that actually happen. So that's that's where the, I mean, I'm talking Fortune 100 or bigger uh, that that will that will do do those kinds of things because it does take a little bit of understanding of live streaming to make that work. Next
1: question. Robert Sebabady in Piastow, Poland writes in my first router has DHCP switched on and it is connected to the backup WAN port on the second router, which also has DHCP enabled with static IPs for all connected devices. When WAN 1 on the second router fails, I lose internet access. Why? Jason? Oh boy. Uh there could be a number of reasons for this. I think what it has to do with is that you have misattributed your routing tables and your router is entirely and completely confused. It is also, I will add, made entirely way worse by the fact that one has Wi-Fi and the other one doesn't have Wi-Fi. When you're using failover and expecting failover to fail over, you need exactly the same statics for exactly the same devices or exactly the same DHCP settings. If you end up with both or even one misconfiguration, you're gonna get all sorts of problems. So you're not losing internet access. What you're doing is confusing your router with two different routing tables.
7: Grant? Yeah, there's, there's probably a really technical reason um, for how it's happening, but my experience is that WAN ports um, with DHCP, with multiple DHCP um, servers running, uh, will confuse each other, and your whole network will stop working. That's what I've found. And so, my ex- my experience, I don't, I don't like failover necessarily. I prefer to be able to choose the my um, uh, what's the gateway. Um, my house, or the gateway. Thank you, thank you, gateway. Uh, I like to be able to choose my gateways per de- per device, right? So that, so what I end up doing is I have um, my normal, my my main fiber internet comes in, and that's serving everything by default. And then I have some five G routers that hang off the back of my house that kind of point straight at the tower, um, and I have them set to static, um, so the DHCP is turned off. Uh, the server is turned off, and then I have a the 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 IP static, and then I can choose that as my gateway on individual machines, and it works perfectly. And now I can I can sort of load balance myself manually load balance um, across different internet connections, and that works really nicely. And I'm not confusing my network trying to have multiple WANS um, that are that have multiple DHCP servers and confusing it all. Go ahead.
10: Jeff. Oh, I'm gonna to have to say this, Grant. That wow, that is a inventive way of doing it. Um, <laughs> you do things different down there. Okay. Um first thing I, I just kind of put this took this question apart. And I noticed you have one router connected into another router. Stop that. Don't do that. Uh, so it sounds like you're daisy chaining things. Yeah, don't do that. Uh, if you have, uh, as many of us in the U.S. have like a Comcast cable modem or, or uh, any, any cable modem, they're usually trying to be a router themselves. You can call them and have them set it to a bypass mode. Uh, they may call it something and pass through, bypass something another. You want that modem just to be a dumb modem. And then have a router like a peplink or, or even a unifier or something, that, a gateway that can control, that you can control everything through. Uh, I think that's probably the first thing I would do. Now, when it comes to your backup, if you have WAN1, if you have two different WAN am, inputs coming in, uh, peplinks and really it fell in love with, you can do exactly what Grant is doing kind of around the way, is you could actually assign certain WANs to certain inputs uh, or certain LAN connections. And so you could say, I want my server only to use the fiber, but I want my desktop machines only to use the cable modem. And then you could also cross those back and forth, too, if you needed to have some other backup uh, options and stuff. But uh, get rid of two routers. That's bad.
0: I mean, I will say at venues, we see two routers all the time because the venue has its own router and we have a router for our own system. So there, you know, and a lot of this is doing exactly what you're talking about, which is defining, exact, it just has to be a network that is defining that correctly. Um, it just, it, I don't know if it's bad, bad, because it's inevitable, uh, but it is uh, it is definitely something that you have to um, manage and have somebody managing carefully. Next question.
1: Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina writes in, has anyone else deployed an NSM-like Security Onion to capture and monitor network traffic.
0: All I can say before I go to John here is that, why didn't I think of that name? It's so great. Security security onion. You, you know, and, and they didn't really take advantage of it. I mean, it should be like this hard-plated onion thing that is like, looks like, a, I don't know. Anyways. Go ahead, John.
8: Been using Wireshark for years. It's fun. You want to lose a whole day of, of productivity, load Wireshark and start playing with it.
0: The next, oh, go ahead, John. I'm Jesse, Jason, sorry.
1: I, I just wanted to add that um, the onion comes from the onion router, which of course is, is the quintessential way to, to, to get onto the dark web. So that that's, that's the namesake behind that. Next question. Ed Wilcock in Grand Rapids, Michigan, writes in, is anyone currently using ST2110 workflows? What are the uh, pain points? What are the costs for the networking infrastructure? Any advice in terms of the networking for people considering ST2110? Jeff? I have an
10: Arista switch sitting in my rack. It costs a little over $10,000. Uh, that was the cheapest way in that I found. So it costs a lot, unfortunately, and it's a lot of pain. India is way easier. Uh, go ahead, John.
8: Yeah, so so th- we got a tour uh, from um, uh, it was Guy actually. We got a tour from one of the NFL trucks. They're using Cisco 100 gig backbone routers, and those are about 100 thousand. I think Netgear's announced the 100 gig switches. I think they're about $18,000, one p p stream at 30 frames is going to be over one gigabit per second. So you need, you need you're going to need at least a hundred gig backbone.
0: I mean, it depends on how many cameras, of course, and how many throughputs that you're pushing through for 2110, but um, you're probably, you probably, 40 is probably the minimum, you know, like if you're going to do a 2110 installation is that's, that's entry level. Um, so, so you you are talking some real money uh, to get into this stuff. It's not, it's not, it's similar to STI costs, <laughs> you know, for for what we're doing. Um, but uh, but it's it is um, so I think that that's the you know in the overall. Uh, but but it depends on how how many signals that you're going. Like that truck, I don't even know how many. I mean, it's an incredible amount of signals that are going back and forth with that with that truck. Um, I wouldn't. I, I admit that I I think that twenty one ten has a has a pretty interesting future. Uh, I wouldn't build a truck with it. Um, so I, I think that I've seen the trucks coming out, and I think that they're all still working through it. <laughs> so so it's it's a it's a it's a lot of incredible amount of damage you know and, and I, I the problem that happened in the past is people were building these st- studios on 2110 there's a couple in San Francisco that built on 2110 and the issue that they got into was that there's just, the compatibility was really a problem because they have all the substructures but now they got to convert everything in and out of 2110 so until all those external devices really come into play it's not it's not necessarily viable. Uh, next question.
1: Robert Zababedi is back from Piastov, Poland. Networking, is there a smart way to minimize the switch over time in a Cisco or Netgear dual WAN router to a minimum, but to avoid losing packets, switching back and forth? Alex, yesterday I was referred to you with this question. Go, Jeff. Uh,
10: For us, it made us move from the unified platform into uh, peplink and peplink. We actually have their speed fusion, which is leveraged in that. So it actually has active connections at all times bonded together. Uh, They call it speed fusion VPN or speed fusion bonding. Uh, Any of those matter of fact, uh, our buddy blue over in uh, Charleston. Now in his studio, we set up and that was one of the first peplink uh, deployments. We did. We were on, Matter of fact, with a guy here somewhere, uh, we we're on a call with him and we were doing a test in zoom, it was seamless, never once dropped. And that's what you want. Right? You want backup not to be downtime. And so uh, it all depends on the implementation and what happens. With Unify, we had a very large, I mean, we had, like I said, multiple trucks, Unify rigs everywhere. It was 20 to 30 seconds. It was painful. to to me and I was losing money so I had to look for another opportunity uh, for a different set of gear that would always
1: be live and that I could always count on it switching over fast. Jason? I don't have much to add to that you can simultaneously you need to be able to double the the packets going out if you want absolutely no packets lost straight away if you're just looking for failover use an edge router and program it very carefully. Next question. Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina, writes in, is anyone else capturing and displaying network metrics and logs with something like Prometheus, Loki, or Grafana?
0: I think we need Bo on the show. Like, you know, like... <laughs> Absolutely. With with this crew of, of yours... Yeah, go ahead, Jeff.
10: I'm still waiting for Bo to give me a call and give me a tutorial on Grafana, and how to make it work, because I installed it, and I was just like, okay, it's installed, and now what? Because there's... It's huge. Big things. Lots of fun, but hard. Bo,
0: come on the show. Come on the show. Uh, Next question.
1: Eric Kurtz in Hartford, Connecticut uh, writes in, uh, since multicast no longer floods by default and nearly all routers and switchers support it, why don't more organizations use it for internal live video distribution?
9: Seth? So IGMP snooping is generally the the feature that the switch has to support in order to manage multicast. And it's not always enabled by default on on switches. Certainly, uh, unmanaged switches do not have or can support IGMP snooping. Uh, The other thing that also happens is when it is enabled on a switch, the defaults can often stay in place. And when you have multiple switches that are all in their default configuration, it has to figure out which one is going to be the primary uh, IGMP. Querier in order to um, actually support the multicast network. Sometimes what happens is the least powerful switch becomes the primary, and then you end up with multicast management issues. So, long story short, it's not always by default uh, going to be friendly on a network. Uh, Lastly, is the usability factor. So, if this is in an organization where you have employees, office workers who are pulling up this multicast feed, uh, it doesn't really exist in a web browser. You have to use something like VLC or, you know, a more advanced video player in order to see that multicast stream, and well, you might have to explain that uh, to, uh, to to the people in the office in terms of how to do that.
4: Good, Courtney. And just for my own education, does does multicast always use UDP, or can it use TCP/IP protocol, or does
9: it just use UDP? Anybody, anyone? Usually UDP because it's 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 a flood, and uh, it will flood without acknowledgement, unlike uh, TCP. I think that beyond any technical limitations, uh, there is a
0: huge cultural, in within IT departments, there is a huge cultural disincentive to use uh, to use any kind of multicast uh, unless they've designed for it, built for it. I mean, oftentimes it's taken us for companies when we used to do a lot of the Contiki slash collective work, it would be weeks of testing, weeks of process, weeks of security, weeks of, you know, like it was just, it was, you know, from the time we, we're going to do it. And we didn't bring it in. It would be the companies decided to do this. And we were running tests against that. And it would take, uh, you know, oftentimes three, two to three months for them to build what they were happy with to allow that. That was years ago. But you have to remember that there's a, beyond the technology, there's a cultural uh, leaning or bias towards like, oh, I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> you know? So, so um, the companies that have done it, arenas, Generally, their networks are very built for multicast because they use it for all the monitors. Um, and so they, um, so they have an entire VLAN, a network that's all built around, sometimes even a copper network that's just built around multicast to get monitors uh, supplied with that video. Uh, next question.
1: Juan Cirobles Robles in CDMX, Mexico writes in, how do you manage convenience versus security when building network infrastructure? Jason. Okay. Um, the first answer is, hire an expert and and don't be the expert if you're asking. Um, The the second part of this is understand your gateway and don't let your gate be your router. If you have a cable modem, don't get the monolith, rely on the monolith you got from Comcast or um, whomever and um, and just get your own thing. That way their their setup stops exactly at the gateway. Second thing is turn off UPnP. Third thing is if Turning off UPnP breaks things. Please hire an expert.
0: All I'll say is that you have you have three circles, you have um, you have security, uh, and you have um, cost, and you have convenience, and you get to pick two. <laughs> so so the, so that that's a, you know like so uh, the the way we fix that is by. Uh, uh, using Meraki, which is really expensive, especially um, in some cases where you might have thousands of units in in place. Um, But the, uh, so there's a subscription cost. It's probably the most convenient and most secure together uh, that you can get, but it's the most expensive version of that. And that's from Cisco. Uh, But you got to pick one. (laughs) You just, you got to decide which one you're going to do in that, in that process. Next question.
1: Jesse Mills in the San Francisco Bay Area writes in, how do you decide when to use VLAN when setting PTP, Flow Control, QoS, and other settings?
10: Jeff? Well, QoS is something that's been around for a while. Uh, Quality of service is what QoS stands for, in case you were wondering. Uh, QoS was implemented back when we had 10 gig, I'm sorry, 10 meg networks. You needed to be able to control everything. You needed to be able to choke a certain amount of traffic to go down a certain pipe. Even even in a 100 base, they were still over oversaturated. we started adding in VoIP and you started adding in, well, now our streaming feeds and things like that. So QoS was an older technology. It's not as necessary anymore, especially in a production network. If you're in a production network, you really need to be looking at a very high quality gigabit infrastructure or better, 10 gig. It's affordable better to go ahead and go that route you don't have to worry about a lot of these other small settings if you have adequate speed in your network uh the ptp it depends on the protocols that you're using if you don't if you don't have something that's more advanced you probably don't even need to worry about the ptp but i personally am leaning towards the netgear M. 4250 and now 4350s are where we're moving into some of our our larger switches and our cores. Those are just managed already and they have their own settings that are common to our network. So we have a Dante profile. We click the Dante profile. If we have NDI, we want to assign that to a certain VLAN. If we want to separate the two, we just click it and they take care of all the settings for you. You don't have to go in and monkey it down to the very, 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 very fine details anymore. That's Basically, my point is, you don't really need to go in and tweak it if you are using tools that are already support it.
1: Next question: Henry Ramos in Yonkers, New York, writes in: In my NIC under Advanced TCP v4 settings, I like to add a second subnet to communicate with a static IP devices like PTZ cams. Any possible issue with this method? Jason. Oh yeah, all sorts of problems with this. I will trust the Windows networking stack to do w- more than one thing with one NIC about this far. I think you are much, much, much better off because you're not going to get persistent connections to both subnets, assigning one subnet per NIC and um, going along with your day. It's inexpensive and the potential, uh, the potential backlash is, is catastrophic. Jeff? I was just going to
10: say a simpler network design would be able to use better routers, switchers, uh, switches in place, uh, try to do less on the computer. Just have it connect to just one connection, one VLAN, one one certain area, instead of trying to do so much in the computer. Because if a computer dies, yeah, sometimes that happens. If a computer dies, then you have to go back and remember, what did I do to that NIC to make it work? And it's just better to have it in the switch
7: infrastructure. Grant? If the computer dies, especially PCs, right, Jeff? You know that you've got to really worry about that. Um, So, (laughs) with with um,
10: all right, all right, um, I deserve that. I deserve that.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I would say it just comes back to the initial um, uh, one of the earlier questions when we were talking about DHCP reservations and things, right? Like if you, 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 I think I I, because I got a. PTZ, a few PTZ cameras and, and I've I've had them set to static and I've had them, you know, I've tried different scenarios and always the best is just having it on DHCP and I know the Mac address and I set it up in, in the router that it connects to and it just works. And then I can use um, a great tool on the Mac called Remote Desktop and that will show me all the devices that are sitting on that, uh, on the network and away it goes. So I, it, it you, what you're trying to do kind of circumvents that and try to get back into DHCP where the network sees everything and assigns the IPs and the way it works. So that's how. That's what I suggest for that. Next question.
1: Eric Hurz in Hartford, Connecticut writes in, how important is FEC for multicast broadcasting, especially on Wi-Fi with normal packet loss?
0: Uh, normal packet loss for Wi-Fi is disastrous. It's actually worse than cellular. So I would say that you absolutely need FEC for Wi-Fi. Um, I, whether you need multicast, FEC for multicast over a completely wired network, I don't know. I don't know if you absolutely need it and probably put it in anyway. Uh, but, but for Wi-Fi, you absolutely need it. Wi-Fi is probably, I would guess, one-fifth to one-tenth as stable as cellular um, to deliver packets regularly. Um, we see this all the time when people join this show over Wi-Fi. You'll see what we call micro stalls um, all the time, like all the time <laughs> It's coming in. Uh, it does ma- matter a little bit on the caching side of things, but FEC, is. Ab- I, would, I would never try to do multicast without FEC over uh, Wi-Fi. Next question.
1: Robert Sababaty in Piastow, Poland writes in, How much internet bandwidth does Zoom ISO require per 1080 output channel? NDI requires 120 megabits per second in the LAN, but what does that equate to with respect to internet bandwidth?
0: Well, for Zoom ISO, um, for the 1080p, just the Zoom ISO itself, I believe it's about 6.25 uh, megabits per second is the, um, is the bandwidth requirement. Um, I, that's what we've observed um, going through that. Uh, it might be somewhere between 6 and 6.5, but pretty close to 6.25. Uh, that's not a number that we were given. That's just a number we see when, we, when we're working um, and we, when we do the multiplication <laughs> you know, for it. Uh, so that's for a 1080p stream. That's what we, that's what we uh, experience. Uh, next question.
1: Danny Grizzle in Longview, Texas writes in, I want to build a mobile package to live stream regularly from rural locations via bonded cell data connections. Planning to wirelessly link multiple cameras to an ATEM Mini. Uh, latency is not a big thing. I keep coming back to Teradek Prism Flex. Workable? Jeff? Yeah. I'm personally not a
10: fan of the Teradek uh, platform. I've tried it multiple times to different different versions different uh products and just never really been happy with it um uh, it, it kind of confused on if you're doing uh, multiple cameras wirelessly that's that's one thing but to separate that from what we're kind of talking more about today is on uh bonded cellular and the infrastructure for that absolutely you can do that um I would start with something. If you need something simple and just drop down, and you're ready to go, talk to Kenan Campbell. He was going to be on the on the panel with us today. Kenan, uh, disaster recovery is that disaster? Disaster and, group.us. All right, I know he's a disaster. He was he, he deals with disaster recovery and other uh, disasters. Uh, he provides a modem uh, based that a, a multi modem based router that you just drop down, plug in, play. It's simple. It is similar to what we use in our PepLink infrastructure, and we use Starlinks. Uh, which, by the way, for those that have been sitting on the fence, uh, PepLink has a new uh, firmware coming out very soon that natively supports the Starlink directly plugged in can't wait because I don't have to do multiple steps for that. Um, but we've done the bonding thing. We've been on the side of mountains doing multiple cellulars. We've done multiple uh, Starlinks, been in, in the middle of a, a lake bed somewhere, getting dirty doing it. Uh, but, you know, there, there's a lot of solutions to do that. Um, I'll stay away from Speedify. Uh, I'll, I'll call them straight out because I don't feel like I think it's voodoo magic that they're telling you they're bonding. I don't think they really are as the same way. My go-to without a doubt is LiveView if it counts, uh, meaning I'm getting paid for it. I want to use LiveView. I use Peplink bonding just for my internet. That's, that's it. I, I don't stream through it necessarily, but I do use LiveView in its bonding capabilities because it's stable and it just works.
0: Yeah, um, and, and full disclosure, LiveView is lending us an LU eight hundred that we use for the conferences, and we've been doing lots of testing with HDR and and four uh, K out of it. We're really happy with it. But I used to lease uh, two LiveViews for a decade, uh, which were the LU six hundreds that we used all over all over the United States, and then rented them when we were overseas. Uh, and I will agree with Jeff that, that the, uh, the live views are the thing that just works. You know, so if you start to, to put other things together, uh, we have done this with peplinks, we have done this with Teradex, and none of them worked as stably as um, a live view. And that's why we're using them for the conferences as well. Go ahead, Grant.
7: Uh, I I was going to mention Speedify as a recommendation, but but now I feel a little sheepish uh, about saying that. Um, I I have used it um, for live streaming, and and it seemed it seems to have worked very well for me. Um, I don't use it a lot, but I have it in as a as an entry level um, option to just get a stream working across multiple connections and particularly when those connections are the same um when when i've had sort of the the same carrier where i've you know uh, um, some 5g connections and i use the same three or four of the same um uh, on the same account and and that's where i've had great success and it's worked really well and it's just kind of um kind of doubled or tripled my upload bandwidth and away it goes but i i take jeff's lead on on um on understanding whether exactly what it's doing. so Good, Jeff.
10: I just wanted to follow that up. I I agree that it's a way to get started. I just don't feel like it's a solution for my needs. Uh, I'm getting paid dollars and I'm getting paid dollars to deliver. And so I want to make sure that my feed is going out as reliably as possible whenever we're getting paid to do that. I, I would say there is something to be said about when you're bonding and you have that one guy, Say Verizon, which uh, seems to be my guy that's only like 0. 0.1 upload, and then there everybody else is like at 5 meg. Um, uh, those bond great, but when you have that one guy out there, this is where the bonding technology really shines, like LiveView, because it knows, hey, this guy's slow over here. I, I don't want to mess with him. I don't want to send stuff through him. I want to route the traffic through the good holes. Uh, and Starlink is the same way, because uh, you can have holes in the, in, as the Satellites are moving over, you could have switchover uh, between satellites, especially in the very beginning of Starlink when we were using it out of the lake bed. We had, we had a couple of times that it dropped out, but we were using two different Starlinks and we tried to start them so that the holes would overlap between each other but you are, especially in, in the peplink world too, that's one thing about their speed fusion is you're going to be held down to that lowest common denominator. So you have to be careful about using the, the more inexpensive bonding solutions that are out there because of that. Uh, they'll try to say, oh, well, let's just kind of limit everything down to 2 meg because the fastest thing is 2 meg. Well, it's 2 meg, but it's only two meg and that's it so you're not going to get anything more out of it and then you're going to be hitting drops out of that one because it's maxed out while the other ones might have five meg collectively you could get a four or five meg out because you have multiples that are well over what you actually need Uh, so that's kind of the thing that live you just does for you so better better solutions for that reason Next question.
1: Eric Hertz in Hartford, Connecticut writes in, nearly all encoders support multicast's output. Why not use your encoder as a multicast source so no servers are required for live video distribution across your entire network?
0: Uh, this gets back into, I mean, if you're talking about what I I'd spoken about before, it gets back into a sensitivity around multicast. <laughs> and so the ability to just have it, just throw some servers in to to make that actually happen because in the grand scheme of things, in a large corporation, let's say you have 10,000 people on campus it's a very small live streaming number. It doesn't take that much of an edge to support. Um, we, we have done multicast for up to 30,000 um, over Wi-Fi, and that has worked um, pretty well. But that's a pretty dedicated architecture for only that one thing. Um, in a larger corporation, oftentimes they're more apt to um, just solve the, solve the problem without changing much of the infrastructure. Uh, next question.
1: Henry Ramos in Yonkers, New York, writes in, is there anything simpler to use than Wireshark to check network traffic?
10: Jeff? There is a great, t- there's a great tool coming out. It's not out just yet, but for checking NDI traffic and Dante traffic on your network or actually multiple things on your network, it's uh, from a friend of mine named Pablo. He is in Dallas and he's writing a software for AV Sono. And uh, AV Sono is his company and he does a- several different things for NDI, but he has a monitoring solution that's coming out. It'll tell you strength between connections, between devices, between uh, PCs, max whatever and it'll show you your overall uh, bandwidth that you're being used I can't wait to get my hands on deploying it in
1: uh, much larger uh, setups go Jason boy I can't wait either um, <laughs> and I just found out about it um, yeah there is only one thing that's easier and um, it is if you if you have a, a professional level router your router can can capture and um, check a considerable amount of your network traffic Keep in mind, I know uh, Jeff doesn't love Ubiquity. Jeff's scale is insane. Okay, like people, people don't think like just how much bandwidth Jeff is pushing. I've not had issues with professional Ubiquity switches. He has. I've also never plugged ten NDI's into anything. So you know that 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 is what it is.
0: I just found out that there's a there's there's a shark fest. Um, Wireshark has its own conference called Shark Fest, um, October 30th to November 3rd. We have to find out how to send somebody to Sharkfest. Fest, that's all, and see how many fins we can find. Next question.
1: Ed Wilcock in Grand Rapids, Michigan, writes in on show sites, are you segregating your device control traffic from your AVOIP uh, signal traffic for example, Shure Control and Dante on the AxiNet system or letting them coexist. What is your preferred method?
0: I think it's the AxiNet system. Uh, go ahead, Grant.
7: Uh, yeah, we, we've done both. So we, we've got a setup with uh, with six racks that do um, across convention center rooms, um, with Constellation racks and TF rack, um, you know Yamaha TF rack with, with Dante running over it. And we just recently changed it to, to have dedicated... Um, Nicks for for the um, for Dante and also a totally separate network for all of the Dante network and and we've just found that it that everything works better you know so the general network has, has works um, nicer as well and we can do some heavier internet um, um you know, syncing and and data transfer and all of that without a concern that the the Dante network is going to get affected by any of that um, when we do it across six and do it all all, all on one network. So we have found that separating it out has worked really well for us. Jeff?
10: I I believe in separation also for that factor. It's just, it makes, to me, it makes things work better. We did have Unify working for a while, but it, it just... We grew out of it. As Jason said, when you start doing 10, 15, 20 different NDI feeds across one machine, and then I've got multiple machines, that's where things start breaking down with some of the less expensive uh, switching networks. But yeah, I like keeping things separated, uh, separated. So that way I can address, I know where the issue is. I can see, oh, it's in the Dante network. I need to work in that. If you have it all flat, if your whole network is flat, it's a, it's a lot more work. So that's why I use it.
0: Yeah. We minimum have a VLAN for our Dante networks. Um, oftentimes uh, when we have built them for large events that matter, uh, entirely different copper network. (laughs) Like it's not like there's not, they don't touch each other. Like the Dante lives in its own world because we just can't afford to have anything impinge on what it's doing. Um, Next question.
1: Tim Gross in Pleasant Hill writes in extending iPhone Wi-Fi. Look up Amazon GL. I bet many routers have this on WAN port. Tether for WAN port. I think that that was uh, an earlier question. I think he, was, oh, he it. was trying to follow up and help Dennis. Uh, one of the first questions, yeah.
0: Yeah. Next question.
1: Steve Uros in Madison, Wisconsin writes in: Does Peplink bonding have any latency impacts on video conferencing or VoIP? Jeff, not that I've seen. It's it's the solution, absolutely
0: and i will I will uh, disagree with jeff uh, it 's a disaster <laughs> like so the problem with with uh, the problem is the, the 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 jitter that goes on between the bonding it causes all kinds of breakup we 've had this problem with peplinks and any kind of bonding. We never bond if we 're doing open uh, web RTC ever um, you know the the reframing of those things we can see it all the time so that is a, that is definitely the one thing we never do is to bond a uh, connection for a web RTC connection after. Hundreds of attempts to make this work. We've definitely not... not, We definitely... Don't do it anymore, and and the reality is, is usually most cell fight, coverage fight
7: fight fight yeah, yeah. fight most fight, most fight. cell
0: <laughs> most in most locations their cell informa- their cell uh, coverage is is fine, and we find that a cellular connection is better than a bonded connection when it comes specifically to WebRTC. As soon as you go to SRT, anything else um, that that has any kind of forward error correction or anything that's there, but the jitter itself with WebRTC just doesn't mix, uh, and we've. Had had that problem for a decade. Next question.
1: Douglas Carmichael writes in, when would you want to use a dedicated Dante audio interface like the Yamaha RUIO16D instead of DVS? Jason? If you're getting paid for it. Um, Anytime you're getting paid for it, you will not use Dante virtual sound card. If you want to learn Dante, use Dante's virtual sound card. I'm sure that other people have had great luck with it, but I will never use a software solution when a hardware solution exists in production or something that I'm getting paid to do.
0: Go Jeff.
10: I have 60 licenses of DVS. We use it daily. It works. You just have to know where where to use it and how to use it. Um, A proper Dante network makes a difference it does uh without a doubt if you have a proper switch network and everything works it dante's dante at that point point. and maybe it's because i use pcs i don't know maybe but it just works
0: for me we definitely think that it, it's gotten better uh i think that, that we definitely had an opinion a couple of years ago up to about three or four years ago that we you know weren't going to put mission critical things on it and and again we we're on a mac it could be different um but but the uh but on at least on a mac we found it to not be totally stable but we did but we've used it we've used dvs for a decade and in general it, it just we didn't use it for we used it for contribution but not core um video, uh, audio and that's been the, that was the you know sometimes it was just simpler to do it that way go ahead tom yeah
3: on a pc i agree on a mac Maybe not so much. It's not as stable.
7: You go, grunt. Um, so uh, before I had a Dante uh, bit of hardware, DVS was next to useless, right? And, and same with I wouldn't even touch Via, Dante Via. Like that whole no. thing is, yet yeah, terrible. Um, as soon as I added a piece of hardware that has the clock in it, the Dante clock onto the network, Everything just sat beautifully and starts working. So i got an X thirty two with a Dante card. Yep. And now all of the Macs that I run, I can run sixteen channels in and out. Um, I do a whole bunch of stuff. It works beautifully and so I'm hearing you well through Don you know, D V S right now and I'm and this is my audio sending out through D V S. Um, on the, they, they did a, it was a little while ago now, but they did an update for the silicon Apple silicon, and, and it just works really well well now, so it's probably better than PC. It is It,
0: <laughs> it, is, it is imperative that you have a piece of hardware. You have a Dante hardware
1: device on the network. you cannot use DVS without it. Uh, next question. Andrew Lipnick in San Francisco writes in, for live events, Dante is physically isolated from other production networks. Is there a workflow where it is advantageous to have Dante as part of a larger network? Good, Jeff. I see
10: zero, zero person. I I don't want to have my Dante traffic part of a larger network that everybody else can see. Zero reason.
7: Go ahead, Grant. Um, I guess larger, like that's relative right? So I've got got my network here and I have it all running on on the same network. Um, And the main reason is that I don't want to do a bunch of separate um, network cards. I want to do all of that stuff. And and I've got all of the machines um, that I have running. Um, I have some 10 gig, like the Mac Studio that this is running is on a 10 gig um, uh, network card and it works great and uh, it's all Unify um, routing, and everything just sits and works nicely. But it's not a large network. So when I was talking about the conferences, we definitely separated it all out. All in here, it's all all together and co-mingles nicely. Jason?
1: Perhaps you should think of Dante as a substitute for a lot of analog patch cabling. And if you think of it that way, and somebody comes up after, you know, here you are at the event, you know, plugging in your Dante stuff, or if you're plugging in an analog mixer, and someone says, hey, I'd I'd really like for this to be part of a far larger patch panel of, um, of XLR cables. Would you say yes? If the answer is yes, you're crazy.
0: We don't even connect, I mean, to put it in perspective, if, if we're if we're going to record a bunch of stuff from, you know, like at a big venue, we want, we actually use analog to go between the two. If we have a Dante network and they have a Dante network, we don't try to have any kind of, they, we just say, hey, let's do an analog patch. <laughs> and so we literally patch it so that there's no clocking issues. Uh, Maddie and Dante are great. And, um, but if you're especially in a real heterogeneous, fast moving venue, like a, um, like a festival or something like that, Going, you know, bridging between the two with analog cables, really short ones, um, away from power (laughs) is really useful. Next question.
1: Douglas Carmichael writes in, would the Yamaha DM3D be a cost-effective choice of console to start entering the Dante ecosystem?
0: Uh, I would say, I mean, it, it would be, um, I think, that, as we said, it's back ordered forever. So, so I think that that is going to be the, the real problem. I mean, right now, what we use primarily as that, that entry level position is the X32 rack um, with, and, and that's the, that's where, I think that's the lowest cost one that I know of that, that we put a Dante card into. Um, so I think that that, but that's what we, that's how we start. Our, a lot of our smaller stuff when we're putting things together tends to be that. And then we move up from there.
1: Next question. Jesse Mills in the San Francisco Bay Area writes in, I know overestimating for a switchback plane would be ideal. How much overhead is necessary for broadcast AV or similar?
7: Jeff?
10: The basics of marketing, of course, are going to blow this out. Sometimes they, believe it or not, manufacturers have been known to enhance their marketing uh, spills. So if you take the number of ports that you have on a switch, say a 24-port switch, they're gigabit ports, Double that, that's usually where a lot of them will land. But this is where it gets a little bit particular. It's like there are certain silver boxes, their switches that actually have certain things that they say they're rated for. But what you don't know is how the many controllers are in each one of those port structures. They may be sharing it across six or 12 different ports, could be just one. The Arista that I have in the right back there is just humming away. It's per port. It's got more power in it. So that's kind of the things as you escalate in your network infrastructure. Those are certain things you need to kind of look at and ask those really hard questions. It's like, what's exactly, how is the infrastructure inside that switch? How is that? Because it starts to make a difference after a while. Go ahead, Seth.
9: So uh, especially be cognizant of port speed, especially when you're planning ahead. So do you eventually need 10 gig uplinks, 25 gig, 40 gig uplinks? So think about that and add that into the math of the switch backplane as well to ensure that there's sufficient bandwidth. Uh, and, you know, one other item too, uh plan for PoE and, and plan ahead for that. Uh, a lot of the uh, Panasonic PTZs require PoE++. So you also want to look at your total power budget uh, as part of the switch uh, in and of itself, too, to be sure it can handle that load down the road. Uh, Um, later on down the line. My
0: general rule for all things related to production is a 40 to 60% headroom. (laughs) That's labor, power, internet, everything. Uh, Next question.
1: Douglas Carmichael writes in, I went to a concert at a local theater and they were using Grand MA2 on PC for lighting control instead of a proper dedicated lighting console. From a security fault tolerance perspective, isn't it better to use a dedicated device per function?
0: You know the real advantage of, of of appliances is that they are they you don't you're not tempted to do other things on them. They don't have a bunch of other things going on. If you treat your PC like a, an appliance and it just runs the thing it's supposed to run, uh, then it works great. If you start using it as a multi use uh, PC or or Mac or anything else that we're starting to run lots of processes, uh, then it becomes unstable. So so it just depends on how you. Tr- it, it's not the PC itself. If that PC doesn't do anything else, but if they're checking email and up, up, uploading and downloading from FTP and, and uh, you know, is going to YouTube and doing all a bunch of other stuff, then that, that PC becomes less and less stable. But if you treat it like an appliance, there should be no reason why it's not stable. The real advantage of a Grand MA is that you have lots of dials and sliders and things that you can use and you can move faster. The interface uh, on the PC is going to be a lot more sluggish um, uh, than, than what you get on, the, on, on a piece of hardware. That was a great second hour, <laughs> so I want to really thank uh, all the panelists for being here, but especially our network experts uh, for being here for this this uh, troubleshooting uh, second hour. Hopefully, we'll do these reg- regularly. I'm probably not every month, but at least every quarter to kind of kind of fill in gaps as people are working through that stuff. So, um, thank you so much for our networking experts for joining us and being part of the conversation, and our general panelists for the general conversation. A great black magic conversation in the first hour. <laughs> it was was kind of fun. I think that these kind of post production. Uh, or post-keynote second or first hours is kind of fun if we have enough questions it was kind of organic so it worked really well Uh, so thank you very much and thank you to the producers for all the great questions today both in the first hour and the second hour really making making a great conversation really is up to all of you watching um, the producers to either use the QR code or use Makana and uh, get your questions in because that drives the entire conversation it makes a huge difference for you to be asking questions it's not like a minor thing like we're just we're just happy to help we need you (laughs) like we need you to ask questions. Um, so so you don't have to ask lots of questions, but like a question a day from everyone watching and we would not have any problem at all filling a, filling a show. So um, so anyway, write those questions down, uh, at, but you can use the askofficehours.com any time of the day. So if you think about it, just, just, you know, just think about it. You go, oh, I'm just going to ask a question. You just throw it right in. You don't have to wait for the, us to reset or when to or to get up in the morning. You can put it in any time and we'll see it in the morning. So uh, go ahead and take advantage of that. Thanks to the great crew on the back end that makes all of this Possible uh, we've got this incredible de- development true that makes this, this is not your vanilla zoom, <laughs> and so there's a great team that makes this actually turn into a production um, there's a team that's managing all of our guests and what we're talking about there's a council that talks about what we're going to talk about um, there's uh, you know incredible team putting those those pieces together and and, um, and then finally of course there's a team actually switching and making all of this happen and we really appreciate all of your contributions um, We traveled drum roll please I think it was pretty uh, uh, I thought we'd go over 100k, uh, 95,000 miles, 153,000 kilometers, and that is 756 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours.
1: Oh, I just stepped on my Windows 11 networking stack.
0: I think we, you know, it we went from no one knowing what, like most people didn't know what bananas for scale was, and then now we're slowly making sure that it's some relatively obscure reddit <laughs> comment is uh,
1: single-handedly bringing it back
0: yeah. again but we have a, the difference is we have a standardized banana yeah the
3: oh, yeah. key enabling Straight technology banana. is right there in your hand you don't have to buy a new one every week yeah <laughs> exactly
9: <laughs> it's always a
0: different
3: size
4: yeah,
9: you, so it's you need like, a you know, like, chart so and so a standardized banana to be on this size. panel
3: is that banana pray, or is it pray we never move to plantains
2: Plantains
3: for <laughs> sale. Be I mean, the cool at the metric imperial.
1: Get a lot <laughs> more plantains per mile.
0: I know, I know exactly. Oh, they're so good too. Yeah.
1: In Australia, mm. that would be a metric plantain. So
0: a metric plantain. <laughs> yeah, well, what what happens when we have a metric <laughs> plantain versus an
7: imperial plantain? So, I, I I saw this. I've thing. just got to say that I loved I loved that Alex didn't give Jeff a right of reply on that. On no, that. That so <laughs> he didn't raise his hand. He didn't
9: raise his hand. He had
0: a right of reply. I, there was no I hand. Knew,
3: I, knew. Even my, even I was because of the, made the last one. Panel smackdown.
0: <laughs> wow. I, I thought I thought you had I thought you you were you had a, you had a I was, you was, ready. A hand up. I was oh, ready. I was ready. I thought, oh, I, you, I, thought oh, I, I, I was like. I didn't see your hand up. I was
1: waiting for you to say something. I, I was like,
10: sending. <laughs>
1: I didn't see it. I, did, did you, I didn't see it. He on must have hand just must Somebody have been this momentary it, think, blindness, yeah. just an attentional blink, you know. Yeah, it is a disaster. All right. okay. I'm sorry. They haven't written anything in the network stack since Windows Seven. That's all I'm going to say. Like at all, they've just Ooh. they've upgraded it like ten times. Same thing.
10: I like how you you have now five steps to get to the same thing that
1: I was one step the away copy from handler, getting. Into. Though
10: is it, <laughs> like adapter settings. Oh my god!
1: <laughs> I'm sorry. Like my mouse wore out just trying to get to what I could do. TCP/IP slash re- release slash all renew all. Oh, I'm sorry. You didn't elevate. <laughs> Start over. Thanks.
3: That's why Apple program shortcuts. <laughs>